Time again for another Word Balloon podcast. Welcome back. It's John Suntress here with uh, three great features for you today. We're going to start things off with Brad Meltzer. You know Brad. He does excellent work, whether it's his thriller novels, his comic books, or his children's books. Uh, and, of course, his uh, nonfiction books that reflect his television shows. Brad is an amazing storyteller, always manages to wrap history around uh, entertaining fiction and give us great stories. Sometimes it's straight-up facts, like in uh, things like Lost History and uh, his TV show, Decoded. Uh, there are things like The President's Shadow, his current presidential thriller that came out this summer. We talk about all those, but we also talk about his biographical children's books that I really think are helping kids learn about historical figures in a different way. And in also a very entertaining way, thanks to the art of Chris Eliopoulos. The two of them come together on these IM books. They are great. I am happy to promote them each time a new book comes out. And we're talking about two of them. One that came out this summer, I Am Lucille Ball, and one that just came out a couple weeks ago, I Am Helen Keller. Uh, great books. Brad is here with a ton of stories, and I caught him on a good day where he had an hour to kill, and uh, he killed it with us. So I think you're going to enjoy the conversation with Brad in part one of Word Balloon. Part two, we talk more about variant covers, but uh, a part of the uh, variant cover market that we really don't talk about much, and that's uh, the burden on the retailer. Because they're the ones that have to order those extra copies of other books to have the privilege of ordering the variant covers. And uh, sometimes uh, the economics don't work for every store. We talk with Dal Bush, uh, one of the owners of Challengers Comics in Chicago. One of my favorite stores, one of my favorite guys in uh, Chicago uh, comic retailing. And uh, I know I'm always going to get a straight story from Dal and his uh, co-owner, uh, Patrick Brower. Uh, but this time, Dal takes the microphone and just gives us one perspective and one store's view on variant covers. And I think you're going to enjoy that conversation in part two of Word Balloon. Part three, uh, one of the panels from Cincy Comic Con. It's the podcaster panel. And it's uh, myself, Wendy Freeman from Double Page Spread, and uh Great artist Sean Crystal, who has just been doing a great job on Ink Pulp Audio, another one-on-one -on -one interview show. In fact, all three of us have uh, creator interview shows, and uh, we just talk about what we like and why we do it. We take questions from the audience, and uh, it's a good podcasting panel that I hope will uh, give you some insight on how we do things, and if you're a podcaster, how you might do things, and uh, look at uh, the way that you conduct your podcast. That's what's coming up on today's Word Balloon. It's brought to you by the League of Word Balloon listeners. Thank you, as always, for your support, uh, whether it's just anecdotally and you're telling a friend, hey, good show. You ought to listen to this thing uh, at wordballoon.com. Or if you uh, can uh, help me out uh, with some money, if you, you want to subscribe to Word Balloon, uh, Patreon uh, is uh, where I am uh, taking uh, subscriptions. If you can even spare a dollar a month, that would really help out. Uh, it helps the cost of the show. It helps me get to um, the different cities that I do and uh, get a lot of uh, interesting interviews and uh, sometimes uh, provides me the opportunity to go to conventions and get panels that I wouldn't normally get. So thank you for your support, League of Word Balloon listeners. Uh, if you want more information on that, go to the front page of wordballoon.com, and there are tabs to click and images to click on that will take you to videos and explanations of uh, why I ask for subscriptions and how you can help out. But the best way you can help out is letting a friend know that uh, you like Word Balloon. Word Balloon is also brought to you this week by InStock Trades at InStockTrades.com. Tremendous deals are happening right now at InStock Trades. I am uh, recording this intro on New Comic Book Day. And among some of the things that are out there, uh, you can get the uh, first Chip Sidarsky Howard the Duck trade. What the duck? 
It is uh, 50% off, just $8.49. You can get a Deadpool Classic Trade, Volume 13, Deadpool Team-Up. 50% off, just $17.49. Let's reach back for some Disney classics and get Donald Duck, Selfish Motives. Uh, 50% off, just $6.49. Kurt Busick and Brent Anderson's Astro City, Confession. The new edition is 45% off, $13.74. One of the best of the uh, Astro City stories. Uh, you can get uh, Deathlock from uh, Nathan Edmondson and Mike Perkins. My guy, Mike Perkins. Man, Volume 2, uh, Man vs. Machine is 45% off. It's just $8.79. How about Orphan Black? Man, I'll tell you, a damn good comic book as well as a great TV series. Uh, 30% off of IDW's Orphan Black. The trade paperback for Volume 1 is $13.99. And uh, you can reach back to uh, Brian K. Vaughn and uh, Pia Guerra and the excellent Why the Last Man. Uh, book 3 is 45% off, $10.99. Just a few of the great deals that are waiting for you at In Stock Trades at InStockTrades.com. Check them out for yourself, InStockTrades.com. All right. It's been a while since we've talked to Brad, uh, about a year or so. And I do like to check in at, with him and Chris on these IM books because I can't recommend them enough. And um, I, I have to uh, warn you because we are talking about children's books, but this is Word Balloon. So uh, a few F-bombs are, are, <laughs> are out there. And uh, we both let our hair down in this conversation. We talk about Brad's comic book work, too. And uh, just his opinion on some things that have been going on lately in comics. Uh, I'm really glad that uh, we had a chance to uh, really relax and have uh, an easy talk because sometimes Brad is constantly going for book signings and uh, speaking engagements. It's tough to pin him down. So it was great that we found this hour of him driving to an event uh, where he had time to uh, let loose and uh, kick back. So it was good to welcome Brad back to Word Balloon. How you been? I'm good. I'm good. Good to hear your voice. Likewise. How much time we got? Uh, you tell me. What do you want? Forty-five minutes. That'd be great. Does that work? Yeah, that'd be wonderful. Yeah, Just, uh, yeah well, I set it aside. That's why I mean, to me, trying to get everything has been crazy these days. I said I knew I have this ride in front of me. I'm like, this is all blocked out for you. The whole schedule. Ah, you're a good man. No, and I know you're on the run. I've been on the run post San Diego as well. In yeah, no, it sounds like you've had some fun uh, with Judd, with Ben. This has been great. Oh, thanks, man. Oh, I'm glad you're listening. I appreciate that. Yeah, I was. Uh, well, and no. I'll, I'll talk about it when we're uh, we're talking. So let's uh, yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. He's back. It's Brad Meltzer. Welcome back to Word Balloon, my man. It's uh, a pleasure as always. It is good to be home. I, you know, I got to be honest. I was getting a little jealous. You were making the rounds. You're doing good. I heard you on with the Nerdist. I heard you with uh, Kevin Smith, and they were terrific. And in fact, um, what I love about the uh, the kids' books, you were kind of applying to these interviews as well. You're giving life lessons in these conversations, and I I think it's good stuff. I think you're really helping a lot of people out that are creative and are looking for outlets and trying to do their thing. And I think you are giving them inspirational, but also uh, realistic advice in terms of how long it takes and uh, that it's worth the journey. No, listen, one, I love you for saying that. Two, I love the fact that you've just admitted that the only reason you're having me back is because I want to kiss another girl somewhere. It's true. I hate, I hate fuck, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I go kiss Kevin Smith and Nerdist, and suddenly you're like, Meltzer, come back here. Dude, as I told you, you're doing I Am Lucille Ball. And I'm like, I want to talk to you about that. I know, and we're talking about the new no, book as yeah, well, Helen Keller, sure. because you're 100% right. You know, nobody ever really talks about 
like the business side of Lucy and how really she was like fantastic to the nerd world. And I'll let you explain why. But also that she was really a very, very smart businesswoman in a sea of men doing exactly what the girl power movement is wanting. And, and it's like, hey, guess what? A few decades ago, this lady was doing it. Yeah, I mean, listen, uh, you know, Lucille Ball and let's full credit also to her husband, Desi, they they were really savvy. And when they when they went out to film I Love Lucy, they said they wanted to do it in front of a studio and they wanted to do it on real film. And CBS and everyone was like, that's too expensive. You know, there's no way you can do it. They said, how about this? Um, you know, you let us do it and we'll take a cut and pay, but you let us own the rights to the film. And they were like, sure, you can own Who cares? What are you going to do with that? Yeah, good luck. And they they basically were the first ones to own the rights to their own show <laughs> uh, in terms of that syndication and that money. And it just became one of the most genius moves. They let them fund what became Desilu Productions. And then this is the part that I didn't know until I was researching. I am Lucille Ball. Is She produced these two little TV shows called uh, Star Trek and Mission Impossible. <laughs> Like, we we owe Lucille Ball forever. You know how much nerd goodness she gave us just by doing that? <laughs> exactly. And right? I, heard... I mean, and I was like, well, I was like, you're talking Star Trek? Like, I'll even give you Mission Impossible, but Star, how do I not know that? Like, you know, so it's not just that she's funny eating the chocolates on a conveyor belt, but she gave us Star Trek, man. And, in fact, someone told me, I was just talking um, to a guy who's related to Rod Serling, And apparently, during, like, one of the tryouts that William Shatner had on the Twilight Zone, and I don't even know how true this is or how much this is Internet myth, but they said that it was, like, Lucille Ball who called up and saw him on Twilight Zone and then said, you got to try this guy Shatner out for Star Trek. And whatever, whoever you can blame or credit or whatever, again, awesome story. I just love that one. And also uh, Desilu Playhouse, which was, like, their... Studio One anthology show back in the 50s or uh, Playhouse 90 is another golden age of television example of these like signature heritage uh, dramatic shows that would have individual stories each week. Uh, Pre-Twilight Zone, Serling had already made his bones as an accomplished television writer, but he had um, a show, and I oh, and now I'm blanking on what it was called. It was The Time Something with William Bendix. You can find it on YouTube, and basically it is the pilot for The Twilight Zone. Because it is, yeah, no, no, it's right, and and it's there, and it's great, and it absolutely plays like an hour long Twilight Zone, and uh, like I said, William Bendix is the star, and and uh, Desi Arnaz kind of takes the place of Rod, being the narrator and the person that introduces it. But yeah, it's great, and it's a guy who wakes up and finds himself in Hawaii the morning of December seventh, nineteen forty one, and try- yeah, that's just good stuff. Yeah, so no, I agree, man. Well, and the thing you got to love about the thing you got to love about Desi Arnaz also is, is him and Lucy. You know, Lucille Ball. You know, they basically say she's like, great. You know, they did this radio show together, and she's like, we're going to take this show on the road. And, you know, it's going to be me. I'm going to play with my real husband. I'm going to do it with this guy Desi Arnaz. And they're basically like, listen, honey, like nobody is going to watch like a white redhead and a Cuban guy be married. Yep. Like nobody's believing that in America. Yep. And they basically said, you know, we're taking the show on the road. They went and did it as a vaudeville act, and it just started taking off. And, you know, what, what's so great about that is, you know, right after that gets rejected, there's a point in time where I think, I think the statistic was one in five households on Monday night were watching I Love Lucy. That's like a staggering part of America, you know, is yep. watching it tuned to the same TV show. It doesn't even happen anymore. 
Um, and I just love that they were just like, you know what? You don't think so? Watch this. Absolutely, man. No, I have complete confidence in uh, her ability and, and the two of them together. And, yeah, and, you know, and again, I, I know a couple of years ago they ran uh, the first episode of I Love Lucy that features their vaudeville routine. Uh, you know, it's one of the things. Yeah, we had to actually to do it in the book. We had to get the rights because I wanted to show the Volvo routine. So when we did I Am Lucille Ball as a book, like, listen, I, I did it for my daughter. I wanted her to have, uh, and I, you know, I, I wanted her to have an entertainment hero who wasn't just famous for being thin and free. <laughs> I wanted her to have someone who was, you know, who was a me. You know, Lucy stands for the idea that it's not just okay to be different. It's spectacular to be different. Absolutely. And I wanted my daughter to have a hero like that. But one of the things I needed to show her was, like, it's not just about, you know, doing vitamin and vegemin or appearing <laughs> with Marco Marx or eating chocolate on the conveyor But, like, she did it over and over. So we actually got the rights to the vaudeville songs she used to do. Um, those were owned by CBS, too, and they were kind enough to, you know, we had to, I wanted to put them in the book. So we actually put the actual lyrics that she did when you see that vaudeville scene. It wasn't stuff we made up. That's actually the vaudeville scene that they used to do. That's fantastic. That's excellent. And also, I love how you distill these historic and entertainment-wise historic figures down to things that kids understand. Lucy was a little girl who, you know, the people who raised her wouldn't let her have fun. And she's just yeah, like, no, yeah. She, had this, she had this really rough grandmother. I mean, it's just this really sad case where, um, you know, her grandmother, Grandma Peterson, used to basically not have any mirrors in the house because she thought it would lead to vanity. She just had one mirror that was in the bathroom. So you couldn't even make funny faces in your house. So Lucy used to go into, like, trolley car windows, and, and that's where she would learn to make funny faces because that's the only she could see herself inside, you know, the bathroom mirror, which is, like, to me, the saddest existence ever, right? I mean, it's just misery. It's like a out of a Disney movie in terms of, you know, the old, the old stepmother. Yeah. Um, but Lucy was living that life and then, you know, went to went to – go be a dancer, went to go be an actress, and her acting teachers used to say, listen, you suck, you sound like a Midwesterner, why can't you be good like your, your, you know, this little girl in the class, this little girl named Betty Davis? And here's Lucy, I mean, I'm not even joking, it's true, Betty Davis was there, they were like, you need to be more like her, and Lucy was just different than everybody else. She just was, and I said, I want my daughter to know that it's okay to be different. I need her to know that, and, and so each, you know, that's exactly what the book is. It's not just it's cool to be famous. It's that, you know, we really try to narrow it down to a moral lesson that you can point to and give a, less, a life lesson to your kid. I mean, the goal of the book is to help them change how they view themselves, not to just teach them about famous people. It's to show them what we're all capable of on our very best days. You know, you uh, you mentioned uh, before we started rolling that uh, you heard my recent interviews with, uh, with Judd Winnick and Brian Bendis, and I know they're mutual friends of ours both. And uh, it was great to hear, I don't know if you heard it on, on the Bendis episode, but uh, Brian was telling me that his little daughter was reading, I want to say, I am Rosa Parks, and came up to him and said, you know, is this true? And he's like, yeah. And so she went back and read it some more, and then they had something to talk about when she finished the book. And I think... That is the great thing. What the last time we talked, we talked about Lincoln, and wasn't it the turtles that he was into? Like he was playing with turtles and stuff. I mean, it's yeah, no, yeah, relatable kid yeah, things. You know, go on. Right, no, listen, I can tell my kid, I can tell my kids that Lincoln freed the slaves, and you know, my seven-year-old has <laughs> no point of reference for that. Not that he doesn't care about slaves, and not that he doesn't, you know, he's for the South to rise again. He just doesn't. He doesn't have any reference point. You know, he's a seven-year-old boy in modern-day America. But when I tell my son that Abraham Lincoln, when he was little, loved animals, and he came upon a group of boys when he was, I think he was 10 years old, 10 years old, Abraham Lincoln sees these boys playing with turtles, 
And he's like, oh, turtles, I love animals. I goes to play with the turtles. The boys are not playing with the turtles. They're actually putting hot coals on the backs of the turtles, torturing the turtles. And I don't care, you know, John, if you're, I don't care if you're 10 years old or you're 45 years old. Sometimes it's hard to do the right thing, but somebody's got to. And, you know, my, my son today, he loves Abraham Lincoln because Abraham Lincoln told the bullies, like, get the coal off the turtles. He's like, yeah. Dad, I want to be like him. Yeah. And so, yeah, when, when Ben just, you know, when Brian, Brian actually told me that story about a year ago. Um, and, you know, he emailed me about it and told me, and I was just like, oh, my God. Like, that's just one of those things where we all have our big narcissistic dreams of what our work will do one day. But in all my, you know, in, in whatever dream I have, I would never think it was going to lead to the first, you know, one of the first conversations you get to have with your daughter about race. I mean, that is just a humbling, humbling experience. And, and, and full credit to Brian because Brian takes those issues on head on with his kids. And they're lucky to have as a dad who is willing to have those conversations with them. Absolutely. No, I agree. And, and also uh, reading uh, I Am Helen Keller, uh, you tackle another tough subject. And that is, you know, kids who are different. And I think you achieve what we all as adults understand about the Helen Keller story, but really kind of break it down for for a little kid to understand. And it's as simple as starting with showing a couple black uh, panels in between Chris Leopolis's art and just go, this is the world that I see. And here's pitch black. Yeah. And it really does. Yeah. I mean, it cuts to the core. That's exactly where to start with the Helen Keller story. Yeah, no, we, we basically, you know, I, I listen, that's a lesson I learned in comics, and it's just learning how to shut up and let the pictures do the talking. And in this case, we did a double-page spread in the book that was completely black. And, it, it, you know, I wish Chris got paid per page because I'd be like, they're paying you for nothing in a black page. <laughs> um, but the truth was is, you know, it says on the page, this is how I see the world. Cover your eyes. Cover your ears. Here's how I hear the world. And when you get to the pages where she learns how to read – we actually paid the extra money. We had the publisher pay the extra money um, to put real Braille into the book. I kind of figured. And so you can touch the dot, and it says, this feel the dot, this is my name. My name is Helen. Now, what's your name? And then on the opposite page is the Braille alphabet. And I watch my 7-year-old. I watch my 10-year-old. I watch my 13-year-old put their hands across that page and touch those dots and look for their name and with their eyes closed. And in that moment, you're teaching them how someone else experiences this world and how different it is than yours. And it teaches them a little bit of humility and it teaches them appreciation of what they have. And to me, it's most important. It teaches them that people are different than them and it doesn't have to be a negative thing. So, you know, and, and I will say for me, the big part of the Helen Keller story is, you know, when, when we do these books, God bless Chris Eliopoulos. Um, he's just the greatest artist to work with. I love working with him. And But what he always has to do, and it's always harder for him, is he has to draw the cover of the book before he's read the book. Because we do the covers like six months in advance so they can be in the catalog for the, for the publisher. Sure. So he, he inevitably you know, draws a picture, and he, he usually does four pictures. He always does like this four-panel, like it's almost like a grid, a four-panel grid, like uh, equal panels. And then we pick one of the four, we kind of say, you know, more like this one, and he'll come back, and the next one will be the one. And when we did a high Helen Keller, he did four pictures, and we were like, nope, none of those. He did another four. We were like, nope, none of those. And he was finally like, going, you know, we're driving him crazy at this point. And, and you know, no direction. And, I'm, and we're, we, yeah, we've even seen one that we like. And he said, tell me about her. And 
I was already knee-deep in the research of it, and I said, let me explain to you. Helen Keller, you know, he drew a picture of her. You know, she's down on her knees. Her hands are under the water at the well. Um, you know, she's kind of eyes downward, looking sad. And every image I have of Helen Keller when I'm younger, she's just like someone to be sad about. She's someone to be pitied. She's different. She's blind. She's deaf. Like, woe is her. But when you read her writings, she was just amazingly alive. She used to say that she would run around outdoors. She would ride horses outdoors, blind and deaf, riding horses outdoors. But she would love being outdoors because there she could feel the sun on her face. She could smell the flowers that she couldn't see. And so outdoors was where she was really alive. And I told that and explained that to Chris. And he wrote back. I'll never forget the email. He wrote back to me. He said, oh, I get it. Exuberant. And then he drew the cover, as you see it. Why I'm Helen Keller. I mean, that cover, he just, he sent one back, and I was like, that's it. Boom. There it was. And all of us were like, that's the best cover you've ever done. Yeah. And Chris is the one who really, really made the book come to life. I'm looking at it right now. No, it totally is, man. It's a victor. It's a winner. And it's and that's the great yeah. thing. And I even think that, yeah, when the kid steps away and has that conversation with a teacher or a parent about it, again, you realize that, yeah, these, these differences don't have to get in the way of, of making your life great. And I think that's, that's, yeah. that's the message, you know? And the cool thing was, is, you know, it was, it actually was a different take on Helen Keller than most people had seen her. Because Absolutely. Again, she's someone that we usually pay. So I went, we went to the American foundation for the blind, which is one of Helen Keller's organizations that she helped, you know, was a founder of, mm -hmm. and we gave him the book and, and let him read it. We always, you know, we try and find the premier organization. We always say, you know, we'd love, tell us what you think we're getting things right or wrong, what we're missing. You always want good feedback. Sure. And I said to the, her, I said, listen, I'm just going to be honest with you. We see Helen Keller very differently than how she's portrayed in the popular culture. We want to really bring uh, people the message that she's exuberant and alive and, and just, you know, someone who not only didn't shirk from her disability, but just, you know, embraced it and hurtled over it. Yep. And life is going to hand all of us hurdles. Life is going to always kick us in the face and then kick us in the neck and then kick us in the teeth and then put a knife in our back. It's always going to happen. And the question is, is like, are you going to keep going? Like, can you keep going? And Helen Keller, just no matter what life handed her, kept going and, I, you know, and was, you know, really alive about it. And the, and the woman from the American Foundation for the Blind, when I finished talking to her about it, she said, it sounds great. That's exactly how we see her, too. Fantastic. And it was just one of those awesome moments where you're like, thank God she didn't say otherwise because we'd really be screwed. <laughs> The association does not uh, support this book in any way. We prefer the sad story. No, this is right. – no, I mean, absolutely, you, you man. You never know. Sure, of you course. Never, you don't know. Everyone has, like, their own view of their own hero, and, and you're kind of – you know, you're risking it because you're like – you feel like you're, you're not rewriting history, but you're just – you know, you're telling a, a, a different version that you see, and, and we all have our perspectives. And, and, and listen, I also have to give credit for the way it turned out. I mean, I remember when we were doing Identity Crisis was was uh, the first time I'd really... Actually, it's not true. We did it on Green Arrow, too, but I remember on Identity Crisis, a particular page, on the page when Sue Dibney is found dead by uh, Elongated Man, by Ralph. Mm -hmm. In my head, you know, when you write a page for comics, you have in your head what you think it's going to be. And, I, and anyone who reads my scripts, I'm the biggest pain in the ass. I write every detail of the panel. I'll say it's a worm's eye view looking upward. You know, the camera's behind them as they point to the sky. So we get the perspective of how big they are and how much bigger the sky is above. I'll give them every detail. 
every angle, you know, where it is. And in my head, I've got the whole page laid out. If I could draw, I'd draw it. And every once in a while, you know, sometimes you get things that are different than what you thought. Sometimes they're a little lesser. They're not as good as what you had in your head. But the best thing when you write comics is when you get that page that is far beyond what even you could imagine in your biggest dream. And I remember when Rags Morales handed, he, at that point it was fax machines, but he faxed me the image of Ralph cradling Sue's body. Mm-hmm. And it was so devastatingly heartbreaking, even more so than I ever imagined. And I was like, I, I kind of gasped and was like, oh, we have something really special here because this is beyond even what I could dream for myself. And that's what happened. And it happened when, on that scene when, when Tim Drake, when Robin's father dies and you see Batman cradling him. Same thing. It was like, it was just beyond anything I could have anticipated. Same thing at the funeral when Ralph starts melting during the funeral and he can't hold his form together. It was just like, I was like, Rags is doing things here that even the geek brain of myself could, I can't imagine on my best day. And when we did, I am Helen Keller, Chris Eliopoulos um, was page after page. I was like, I kept saying to the editor offline, are you seeing these? And she was like, I know. Right. And we were just, marveling because it was beyond what any of us anticipated. I think it was just also probably the tipping point for us working together that we work together for so long now that we understand each other and have to kind of write so much. He gets me and I get him and I trust him. And he just, he brought the whole book to life. I completely agree. And I also know uh, growing up with the Patty Duke film version of the miracle worker, the Helen Keller story that was on Broadway and then became a, early 60s movie with Anne Bancroft as as Anne Sullivan. And also, uh, didn't Melissa Gilbert from Little House, didn't she play Helen Keller? Yeah, Melissa Gilbert was, yeah. And the weird thing is, is that movie is like a touchstone for girls. I mean, I watch it too because, I listen, I I love my feminine side. So I get, but like for (laughs) girls, it's amazing to me that girls, when I said we were doing Helen Keller, how many women came up to me and was like, when I was a girl, I was obsessed with Helen Keller. And, And in a strange way, I was like, oh, she must have been like to you what Bruce Wayne was to me or Clark Kent was to me. Like, girls had this superpowered woman named Helen Keller. Like, she was just this, you know, truly this miracle. And I will tell you, that movie is, is you know, again, she's just, I was remember being scared by that movie. It's just, she, she's just, it's scary. It's like, a, it cuts to the core of your fear, right? Blind and yes. death. Yes. Nobody, nowhere. So that was just always one of those ones that just always freaked me out. But yeah, but even in those movies, right, she just seemed like, my gosh, doesn't her life suck? That was the message. Yes. Well, and it had that, and forgive the comparison, because, uh, again, I don't mean this in, in the uh, gross way, but it was it was kind of like the Elephant Man, where it was this, like, in fact, in your own book, you say that uh, initially before Ann Sullivan enters Helen's life, her family didn't know how to deal with her. She kind of was like this monster. And, you know, Chris wonderfully, you know, still keeps her very human and stuff like that. But, you know, Helen is this confused, thrashing child that can't express herself. And it is heart-wrenching. Yeah. Absolutely yeah, heart-wrenching. You know, and, we, and, you know, it's funny. We debated, do we put this in the book, mm-hmm. right? Do we show her being the monster? Do we show? And I was like, you better damn right we do. Of course we do. Like, this is what happened. You don't yeah. rewrite history like you, like... And an amazing part is, is kids totally get it. Yep. And I know, you know, my, my 13 year old is a reluctant reader. He actually said to me once, I'll never forget. He said, I hate to read. And I was like, you do know what I do for a living, right? <laughs> I'm like, 
you, you do know what pays the bills, like what sends you, puts food in your mouth. You do know what, what, how, how we do that here. But he hates to read. And I remember he, I, I'll never forget it. He came to me, and listen, he's beyond the age of who reads these books. So usually, you know, people get them for much younger kids. Mm-hmm. Um, but he came to me and said, Dad, can I read the Helen Keller one? And I was like, who are you and what have you done with my child? <laughs> you know? But I gave him the book, and he was like, and he came to me after, and he said, Dad, this, this is a special one. And I was like, and I knew right there there was just something about it because we just didn't hold back. We were like, you know what? Here's, it was scary. You know, here's a yeah. girl who's freaking out because no one understands what she's saying. So, of course, she's going to be throwing stuff and kicking stuff over and going bananas. Can you imagine being like that when you were that age? And, um, and kids, kids keenly understand in a primal way. You know, kids know how to find violence. Kids know how to find a fight in a schoolyard. Kids know how to smell fear. And kids know better than anybody how to spot what's different. And I hope if I do one thing in my life, it's to help kids figure out that when you see something different, you have two responses. And that is you make fun of it, which is what comes sadly to the human animal, mm-hmm. or you put a hand out and you help. And if I am Helen Keller as anything, I hope it teaches, you know, your kid, your, your niece, your nephew, whoever it might be, to put their hand out and help. Absolutely. And the value of a teacher or someone in your life that comes and says you can be more than what you currently are and believes in. Oh, let, let's, talk, let's talk about, so let's talk about the teacher side, right? Absolutely, man. Have to. <laughs> so here's the thing. So, so this, you know, Helen Keller, when I dedicate the I write the book like something like a year ago. I mean, it's a long time ago. Um, and I dedicated the book to my English teacher who changed my life. Mm-hmm. I had this English teacher who took a chance on me, was the first person who ever said I could write. And I remember in ninth grade, you know, going to her class, and she was the first one who said, you can do this, you can write. So I, I love that teacher. I owe her forever. I remember going, you know, I went back to her classroom and, and thanked her. When my first book came out, I went to her classroom, knocked on the door, and I said, my name is Brad Meltzer, and I wrote this book, and it's for you. And she was crying, and it was like this great, you know, really amazing emotional moment. And what happened was uh, I dedicated I Am Helen Keller to that teacher, to my old English teacher. And then what happened along the way is I had previously dedicated another book to my history teacher when I was in high school, my 11th grade history teacher. And I said to her, uh, she found out about the dedication. It was a decoded book that we had done for the History Channel. I dedicated it to my history teacher, right? Okay. I mean, I, I, write histor- I write historical books for kids. I write historical thrillers like The President's Shadow. Yep. I, I, I host two TV shows that run on the friggin' History Channel. I owe my 11th grade history teacher, right? I got to say thank you to her. Sure. So I, dedic- I dedicate a book to this woman. She gets in touch with me, and she's like, listen, i got to tell you something. We go back and forth a couple times just catching up. And she says, now, maybe the third time, she says, i got to tell you something that I didn't want to tell you. And I'm like, uh-oh, what's this? And she said, I'm actually sick. I'm dying. Aww. And my, kid- my kidneys are failing. And I see that you have, you know, like upwards of almost 100,000 people on your Facebook page. Do you mind putting a post on there and seeing if you can find a match for me? to see if I can find a match and get me a kidney. Wow. And I'm like, listen, I think I can make a Facebook post for the teacher who changed my life. I think I'm capable of that, right? So now here's the part of the story that, again, we don't get to always tell, is we actually put the post out there. We get someone, all these people volunteer, strangers giving their body parts for my history teacher. Man. One of them 
this is just unreal. Uh, she, she actually winds up being a match. She comes down to Florida. They, they're doing a biopsy because they have to kind of like check your own kidney to make sure it'll, you know, match in all the different ways that it matches. Right. And they're doing the biopsy and then she disappears. I don't know. I haven't heard what happened. And a, a couple weeks go by and I get an email from her. This is the donor. And she says to me, Brad, I just want to tell you that when I was down there and they did the biopsy, they actually found a cancer on my kidney and they caught it so early they were able to get it out. But I want to thank you for saving my life, Brad. Wow. And I'm like, and I said to her, you, I didn't save your life. You saved your life by being so nice and volunteering to help my teacher. So then you figure that, you know what, that's a good enough story, right? Like <laughs> in Passover, we say, you know, Dayenu, like that's enough. <laughs> and so, and so basically I just love when I can do a good Dayenu. Amen. And, Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Give me an amen. Right. So now you figure that's enough of the story. Now we tell that story on my Facebook page. And I say, listen, we got to listen to the universe. We saved this, you know, this woman's life got saved. I'm still looking for a match. If anyone's out there, we still need a match for my history teacher. So we get, again, all these people then respond, say, here, take my kidney. And this one woman, Amy, this amazing woman, she writes to me and she says, hey, Brad, I tried getting in contact with your teacher, but I couldn't get back to her. She didn't get back to me. And I'm worried that she just, you know, missed my email. And I'm thinking my first thought is, you know, I'm sure she's just busy, man. Just, like, wait it out. They're, they're going to get to you. Don't worry. they got a lot of people to deal with. But for God knows what reason, John, I'm like, you know what? I send it myself. I say, listen, this woman, Amy, she thinks that you missed her email. Like, just take a look. Here she is. I send it over. She winds up being, I get an email back. They're like, Brad, that woman you sent us, she's the match. Wow. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. So now here's the best part. So... I am Helen Keller. The last page of the book ends with this. I wrote it a year ago. I don't know what's going to happen in the universe. The last page says, go thank the teacher who helped change your life. Three days, four days before the book comes out is when the surgery is between this donor and my history teacher who now is doing well because she got a, a kidney off of my Facebook page. And it all happens within four days of I am Helen Keller coming out. I'm like, I, I am either like the luckiest guy in the world or the greatest marketing genius of all time. <laughs> Just I'm a like, couple next, weeks ago. You know, Go on. From, from, my, from my next thriller, we're going open heart surgery. We're going bigger. <laughs> like, it's going to be. So, I mean, is that the craziest story? Yes, it is. Paul Harvey would be very impressed with this story. I think you, and now you know the rest of Brad Melcher's story. Yes, exactly. <laughs> That's fantastic, man. Man, nice going, Jesus. You are a superhero, Melcher. This is good. No, man, I did nothing. I literally, I was a dummy who had a Facebook page. Let's be honest. It's that woman, Amy, who's the hero. She gave her I, body part for a stranger. I get it, man. No, no, I get it. But this is the thing is, again, you... Your words and your stories inspire people, and you have created this community that appreciates your entertainment, but also uh, your calls to action. And I mean, this, you know, I mean, from the Siegel House uh, in uh, in Cleveland, that I think you, you know, you you put your weight behind that that cause as well, and, and especially to be able to give back to to a teacher that was that one that said no you've got talent and or then the history you know the case of the history teacher you know now I'm now mixing yeah, my no, I, listen, I, I so, love you for saying that I love you for saying that but the truth is is anyone who has like you would do the same thing it's just a matter of how many people you like the numbers sure. right like and and I, I just pick the cause that we believe in I don't do it often and when we do one you know it's because it's something that like I feel like this is life or death this is something that is vital and 
again, you know, you've seen it before, the comic community that, you know, the, the, the readers that we have. I mean, I, I was just saying to Judd last night, I mean, I feel there's nothing I feel prouder of. And I saw it. It's funny. It happened with Judd and, and, and Bendis. It was Brian the other day. Like, you know, Brian put the word out that Judd was on Seth Meyers. Yeah. And, you know, I remember doing the same when Brian was on. And then Joe Hilp, we put the word out for him. Like, uh-huh. And I, I said to Judd, I said, I love love, love, and I'm never prouder to be part of any community, because we don't have it really in the novel community as much, but in our comic community, I love when we're a true community. I love when we are, once again, that little group who just stands for each other and says, I'm going to help you. And that is, to me, it lifts me up on a regular basis when we get to stand together. And you see it all the time. You even see it when you don't see it. Like when a bad superhero movie comes out, I love... That the comic book community, like, just kind of, like, takes care of its own and is like, listen, we're not going to just pile on like everybody else is. Like, we're going to stand together. Like, even on the bad ones. Like, we're not just going to be there for the victory parade. When we get, you know, that knife in the back, like, we're going to take that two together. And, like, I, I, and when someone's name gets left off a credit at the end of a TV show, you know, because they were the creator who actually created that fucking character and should yep. be on that show that's on network television. I love when we all say that's bullshit, put the person's name in there. Like, Hell yeah. I love when that community stands together. And, and this is one of those cases where I just really got to watch the community stand together. So it was great. That's true. And also that um, sometimes we're reminded, too, that we think we're dealing with faceless corporations, but actually... Uh, hopefully, as many times as people get shut down, there is somebody good in that corporation that goes, "Oh, you know something? That guy did get fucked over. Hold on a second. Let's let's yeah, uh, no, you know Jerry Conway is a perfect example of that, and I'm glad that he spoke up, and I'm glad that a guy like you know Jeff Johnson said, "Wait a minute, you're right. Wait, the, the, let's, let's right. fix that." And you know why? Because Jeff, you know Jeff is one of the nicest people on the planet, right? And that's why it happened. And you know what? And I can show you there there's story after story when you really dig into the comic book history. Um, I can't tell you how many people I've talked to who are like, you know, Paul Levitz never took credit for this, but when I was starving, when I needed money, when I needed insurance, yep. Paul took care of me and oh, yeah. he took care of me in a way that they never advertised and never said a word. And it's pretty amazing to watch happen. So yes, you know, are they big corporations? Sure. Um, but are there real amazing people at both sides? You know, Casada too, who I, you know, sure. I, your friend, I love Joe, um, you know, at, and, who just really do look out for their creators and make sure that, you know, when, even if whatever the case is, uh, does, does really try to do right by them. And, and again, uh, that's the community I want to be a part of, right? That's the community I'm proud to be a part of. I agree. And I, I've got to ask because you brought up identity crisis because, and especially because of some stories that have been circula- circulating lately. I remember, and we've talked about uh, some of the uh, controversy around some of the scenes you had in Identity Crisis. And, uh, you know, I got to tell you, uh, you got a lot of scrutiny back then. I wonder if you look at some of the controversial stories that have happened now and some of the audience reactions to covers or themes and things like that. And just in terms of you've just given a lot of good examples of what social media can do in responsible hands. I also think that, unfortunately, there's a very loud and angry portion of social media that is quick to judge, uh, quick to shame. And uh, that kind of makes me uncomfortable. And I wonder if. Yeah, no. And I listen, I think that's a danger. You know, we have the great thing of social media where, you know, you have like that Bill Cosby situation where 10 years ago, no one says a word. But now 
you can't cover that crap up anymore. Absolutely. We got this thing called social media. And so you see working for, you know, a giving voice to the voiceless, the very best social media has to offer. Absolutely. You know, the problem with that is also, you know, when everyone has a voice, you can also very quickly have a mob. Yeah. And, you know, there's just a fine line between fighting for what's right and mob mentality, and it's really easy to cross. And, and you know, and I can, you know, we can go example by example, but we all know it really kind of nets down to the Supreme Court definition of pornography, which is, when is it bad? You know when you see it. Yeah. You know, you yeah. know when you see it. And uh, I know which examples I'm thinking of right now that you're talking about. There are covers that I look at, and I'm like, you know, is that the cover I want on my book? No. Uh, does it mean you go after the author personally and attack them? No. And I think in a strange way, and I do think it is happening, I think we are, again, as a community, um, especially in the comic community, we are learning kind of our own power, and that's what always happens when there's a new technology. You have to kind of learn the limits of it. Agreed. And I think, you know, I think even even six weeks ago, six months ago, you would see kind of different levels of outrage, and I think we're now readjusting our barometers and saying, you know what, I know it's really easy to throw stones. I know it's really easy to judge. I know it's really easy to pile on. Um, my New Year's uh, resolution this year is I just I never want to pile on. I just refuse to do it. I feel like, you know what, like, if someone else wants to go do it, go do it. I just don't want to be a part of kicking someone when they're down for one mistake. And, in fact, in the president's shadow, in the latest thriller, there's a line in there um, that came from a great quote by um, by Senator Kerry, not John Kerry, but the other Senator Kerry. Bob uh, Kerry? Bob Kerry? The... Bob Kerry, right. Bob Kerry, not, not John Kerry. Okay. Who said um, it was this great piece in the New York Times about uh, Gary Hart and what happened when uh, when he had Donna Rice sit on his lap and he kind of lost his whole campaign and bloated. Yeah. And Bob Kerry had this great quote in the article that I'll never forget, and it said, you know, none of us are who we are on our very worst day. And, man, did that hit me. It just was like, that. you know, we all have done something where we've said that dumb thing where you, you know, you're with a friend, you say that thing you wish you could just take back, and when you're with your friend, you can't. And now on social media, you can't. No. And I just, I try very hard to not look at one comment and judge the entire person's life on that comment. That's been kind of my one thing is I don't want to be the person to pile onto that. I don't want to judge people. And listen, sometimes you do somewhere I'm like, you know what? You revealed yourself. It's the Maya Angelou threat, right? When someone shows you who they are, believe them. Sure. And, and sometimes you do. But there are many times where, you know, our lives are made of many days, not just one bad one. And to me, my goal is to try and be a little bit more open-minded that we're all going to have those screw-up moments. Understood, and I agree. And I do think that uh, we are. social media continues to evolve, and I think some of the choices we made uh, five or ten years ago on the message boards, I, I certainly am less outspoken than I was in in the message board days. And it's because of, yeah, just, again, I think – we realize that uh, we need to be responsible. It's the Peter Parker thing, the Peter Parker principle. Right. Hey, well, say, no, it absolutely <laughs> is. And it's not just the Peter Parker principle, but it's also the principle of like, then you, you know when you, you know, I, 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 so here's a great story. This is a true story. I okay. won't name the creator, but this is a true story. And, and my friend Noah knows who it is. But he, I remember him, he hated this creator. He's like, this creator is crap. He can't you know, do this. He's terrible. He's awful. And then we went to San Diego. Comic Con years ago, it was a decade ago, 
and he came face to face with the creator and he looked at the creator and he looked him right in the face and said, I love your work. And the reason is not because my friend Noah is some kind of sellout and not because he doesn't have the balls to tell someone they suck to their face, but because he has the humanity to realize that it's so easy to hate someone from afar when you've never met them. But when you see that they're a human being, my gosh, like how do you possibly look someone in the face and say you suck? And to me, that's not a bad thing. Like that's called having a soul. And, <laughs> and anyone that and I'll tell you right now, anyone, like so many people will go back on the old message board days, you know, back on, uh, you know, when we used to even be on listservs and things like that. Sure would rail against someone the moment they go to a convention and meet that comic creator for the first time that's the last time for the most people that you go and rail against that person unless they're a total asshole in which case rail away but like you know for most people they're like you know what oh my gosh wait that's a human being yeah and and i can and i can only prove it by my own experience you know when, when well, a couple of years ago the new york times said that i had the first ever author website in existence I don't know how they figured that out. I don't know why. It's basically because my buddy at IBM was like, we got this thing called websites. We're going to make you one. You want one? I was like, sure, make me one. You know, like, no, it was like, I'll get you one. You do it. Um, which is why I named the calculator after him. It's identity crisis. That's awesome, um, man. Absolutely. And I know the Noah you're talking about. Uh, you know, we follow right, each other you know on Twitter. Talking about. We talk all We've the time. We've talked about him before. Absolutely. Of course. So Noah's the best. And Noah gave me the first website ever. And the one thing we did on the website is we put a thing where people could write to me. And and everybody still to this day, people will write me a letter, you know, saying, you know, some people write you say you're the best. Some people write you say you suck. And just because they write you say you're best doesn't mean you're the best. And just because they write and say you suck doesn't mean you suck. But sure. inevitably, we write back to, I write back to every person. And we always write back to the person who says, you suck, I hate you. We always write back the same thing. We just, you know, I always say something to the effect of like, listen, I appreciate that. You know, I appreciate you just even taking a chance on us. Thanks for even it. Sorry you didn't like it. And I'm telling you, John, that 99.9% of the times, the person who we write that back to writes back to me and says, hey, Brad, you know what? I was just pissed off. I was, that was totally inappropriate. I should have never said that shit to you. I'm really sorry. 99.9% <laughs> of the time, they write back saying that. It is just incredible to me. And again, not a bad thing. It gives me faith in humanity. Like when you realize there's a person out there that's the last day you go and rail like a maniac on a message board or on a you know on a website I've had or some, on Twitter or on anywhere. Yeah, I've had similar circumstances, so I totally understand what you're saying. And I've had that kind of exchange and gone back, and you're right, and everybody softens up. I even – actually, I, I even remember uh, being harsh to Rucka and just going, oh, man, that book wasn't what I wanted it to be. And he's like, yeah, but this is what I was trying to do. And I'm like, you're right, man. I'm the dick. All right, sorry. <laughs> No, there's, you know. there's no, you know, that was jujitsu, Jewish, Catholic, call whatever guilt you want, but guilt. Like, that, that's how you do it, though, right? And, and the thing is, listen, what we're really talking about is it's called maturing. It's called, yes. you know, becoming an adult. Yep. And that's really what you're doing. And, and, that's, and, and you know what? I want there to be people who can go and be great critics and go in and really, there are sometimes I read something critically that I'm like, they're right. That's my flaw. I'm not good at that. I need to get better. I don't think every critic's wrong. If you think every critic's wrong, you're stuck and you'll never move forward as an artist. Absolutely. I read all the critical pieces, and even in the bad ones, I'll try and find that nugget of truth because there's some truth in there. There's something that I'm bad at that i got to get better at. That's how I learn, and that's why I hope I move forward. 
what I what I just you know will always stand against. I don't want to be that person, and I don't want to be the person who who lets it lapse into a personal attack. Like there's there's absolutely we need good critics to hone us, to improve us, to challenge us. Uh, that's how you improve. But um, you know when it gets to that point of of, of personally attacking, uh, that's the one where I just draw my line. I agree with you absolutely. I uh, with our few minutes left, I want to know. Uh, What's uh, I actually got a little more time because I'm in. Oh, traffic, good. So I can say you want me, yeah, do a little more. Oh, that'd be great. Okay, fantastic. Awesome. So, how's uh, the reaction been to President Shadow? I love you know the, the story continues and it's uh, you know I'm I'm enjoying it. Yeah, no, we have fun. So yeah, this was a fun one. I actually um, one of the really fun things that happened as the book came out is I got invited probably a month and a half ago. I got invited to um, Barbara Bush was turning 90 years old. Okay. You know, George Bush, George W. Bush's mom, Barbara Bush, the first, former first lady. Mm-hmm. And they said that she was going to do was bipartisan, invite Democrats and Republicans. She wanted to invite four authors to come and raise money for charity, for literacy. And she was going to have four authors come to her 90th birthday party to entertain. And I was like, wow, that's awesome. Who are you guys going to get? And her staffer was like, dummy, you. <laughs> I was like... Oh, okay. Yeah, I'll be there. Yeah, I'll check my calendar. I've got nothing as usual. Yes, I'm in. So I wound up going to Kennebunkport, Maine, with my wife. And at one point, we're sitting in in in, in George Bush and Barbara Bush's house. There in the living room, next to me is Jeb Bush. To the right of me is George W. Bush and Laura Bush, former president of Mrs. Bush. You know, the Bush twins are running around in one of the rooms next door. And my wife turns to me and she's like, at what point did your life become Forrest Gump? <laughs> and it was just so absurdly ridiculous. It was it was just this fantastic. And, and one of my favorite moments, there was a moment where someone actually accidentally bumped into my wife and kind of like smashed into her pretty hard, actually. Like he just didn't see where she was. And he was turning around and kind of like elbowed into her. And my wife... You know, when someone smashes you really hard, you tend to, like, kind of claws out. You, you, you whip back around looking for the fight. <laughs> and my wife, whip, my wife whips back around, and she is nose-to-nose with former President George W. Bush. 43. And I'm looking okay. at this. I'm looking at them nose-to-nose, and I'm like, man, this is going to be the greatest fist fight of all time. <laughs> and, uh, and I will say, luckily, no, no, no fists were thrown, but it was just a you know, great surreal moment, and, and everyone survived, and that was good. But it was uh, that was what kicked off the President's Shadow book tour. And and the book opens, as you know, um, it opens with what I learned from former First Lady Barbara Bush and from Laura Bush. I mean, it, it, which is every First Lady, what they want is they just want normalcy, man. They're just tired of, like, everyone looking at every single thing they're doing. So the book opens up with this very simple image is the First Lady is, you know, is this chapter one, page one, is she's in the White House Rose Garden. It's four o'clock in the morning. She just has a moment to herself. She's a gardener, so she just wants a moment to herself in the Rose Garden. She puts her hands into the dirt. She smells the mulch, and out of the dirt, she pulls out a severed arm. Yeah. And she has no idea how the arm got there. She doesn't know how they got past security. She certainly doesn't know that in the fist of that closed arm that there's a puzzle that she's going to have to solve, but that's chapter one of the president's shadow and Genius. we go from there and I, which is uh so, so it was obviously a really fun book and we're going to do the i think right now it's like 9.99 on ebook and then we're going to do i think in december they're going to put out the paperback it was okay fun so we get to put it out there again 
That's fantastic. I uh, well, I, I want to talk about the the president stuff because uh, as you you kind of and we've talked about this before. You are close to forty one and Barbara, uh, or you've gotten to know them as well as an acquaintance can. Obviously, being invited to Ken and Bunkport. When you are in their presence these days, is it just observational, or do you still get that moment when you can ask a few informational questions that might help you? You know, writing the next book. Oh, no, I'm shameless, man. I, I will always ask questions. They know. They know. I'm always like, I mean, I'm, first of all, I'm observing it all. I mean, every single moment. I'm, sure. You know, I, I remember going, they had me come up one time. This is when George W. Bush was president. I've been, you know, Clinton had me come up to his offices yes. in Harlem, um, which is really, so, you know, I, every time, no matter where I go, no matter who the president is, I, I mean, there's not a single moment where you're not going, oh, my gosh, it's the president, because it just is. I don't care who you are. I don't care how important you think. It's still cool. It's the president. And I remember going to, um, they had me come to this private lunch in the president's private dining room up in the residence of the White House. And this is a room that, you know, this is a table. Maybe there were 15 of us. You know, I mean, it's a tiny little room. You know, it's not like one of the, it's not like state dinner where there's lots, you know, hundreds of people. And we're, you know, private dining room. It's, it's Laura Bush and, and Barbara and, and, I think, I think Laura Bush, I know, it was, I know George W. George H.W. Bush was there and Barbara Bush was there. And I remember sitting next to Barbara Bush. She was the center of the table, and they sat me right next to her. And, and when you sit down in the White House to eat in the private dining room, you don't get to pick your chair. Like, they, it's all figured out, like, sure. in advance. And, and there's a card at my place setting that says, Mr. Meltzer, and it says the White House on it. And my first thought, as anyone's first thought should be, is I'm stealing that card. <laughs> Right, <laughs> I'm stealing that sucker like no business, and so and then Barbara Bush leans Barbara Bush at that moment leans over to me. And she's like, you know, all the novices when they come here, all they want to do is steal their card, and I'm like, yes, all those novices, all the novices want to do that. And meanwhile, I was like, look over there, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And then as soon as she turned the other way, I totally swiped the card. Um, but yeah, you better believe I stole that card. So yeah, so I but if I'm sitting there, I'm always asking questions. I mean, you know, not. All nonstop, but um, and they've been kind enough to answer. So yeah, that's it, it, you know, I, as long as I can um, do that, I, I will keep trying to steal my card. Excellent, that's cool. And as a voter, so I mean, and and you know, not to not to give away your politics necessarily, although I, I suspect that uh, you're you're more of a liberal. But like, no, you're you're getting ringside uh, an opportunity to see maybe a a less defensive. Jeb Bush, for instance, who obviously is, you know, trying to make his move this time around in this. Yeah, in this no, season. you know what? So, yeah, what, like, you know, just like observationally and everything, you're getting a chance to see this guy in a way that a lot of people don't. What what was it like? Um, you know, I, it's weird, but, you know, Jeb Bush, the first time I met him, he, so I live in Florida. He was governor here. Oh, that's so true. Yeah, shame on me. Like exactly. A, so, this is your former right. governor, so he's, too. He's been, and, and, yeah, and, and he was actually kind enough. He, he, he took one of my books, The Zero Game, and had every kid in Florida, and I think, like, you know, 10th grade had to read the book. So how could I possibly? <laughs> Put this on the curriculum, damn it. I'm not even joking. They literally did. They That's had to, like, fantastic. Look at every, it was fantastic. I was it's like, a... that is the greatest piece of policy that I've ever read in my whole life. Good like, book, man. All right. That was so, um, but, you know, the, the, you know <laughs> the thing that you realize is, and this is what I, you know, the, the one thing every president or wannabe president is good at kind of trying to hide their true self. You're never going to really get the real them any more than you're going to get, you know, even even anyone you're talking to on here, you get you get a sliver of them as, as what we hold forward. But there's those, you know, do I really know anybody? Do we any, like, let's get existential for a moment. You know, how, you, 
everyone is you're showing what you want to show that's True. beneath your mask. True. However, the one thing that I take away that I know for a fact that I take away from watching the Bushes and even now watching the Clint is I remember I remember sitting in um, the Bushes' house when they had me come up to uh, to Houston one year, and you know I was like, "What do you watch on TV? Like, what do you what, what does a former president watch? You know, like." what's on TV. And the one thing that struck me, uh, and I use this in the president's shadow, is they watch a lot of sports and, and not a lot of news. And the reason is, is because the you and I, as the president, to them it's their son. Sure. And and once you have that little detail, that's when you see the humanity, because that's the stuff you can't hide. And so to me, you know, when I watch Jeb Bush now, um, you know, I'm fascinated by, like, how anyone holds themselves out or how anyone tries to, you know, create, recreate, or whatever word you want to attribute to what you have to do when you run for president. Mm -hmm. But I'm far more fascinated when you get to see, like, you know, what your fa how your family reacts to it. Because you can't hide. Like, if someone's doing something to your sister, if someone's doing something to your brother, I don't care who you are, you're not strong enough to hold back. Sure. You can't. And that's when you get to see, like, family. Although Barbara Bush is, like, she's pretty funny about it because she's like, all my favorite children are here this weekend. And George. <laughs> and I'm like, that's just a funny bit, man. That's just good comedy. And she's talking about W. Holy shit, man. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good, I mean, that's just a funny bit she does. And she knows what she's doing. She knows it's going to get a, cheap, you know, it's a great laugh. But I'm like, that's A-plus humor to me. And does W roll with it? He's, he's yeah, whatever. Oh, he's that's funny. mom. No, he's, oh, he, that mom. No, they, he did a great bit. He, like, got up and he was like, you know, he, I, I spoke to him, and he was like, yeah, you know, Mom made everyone read books. She never read to me. That's why I can't read now. Like, he's funny about it, you know. <laughs> and, and he totally knows that that's their bit. Like, in every family, like, I don't know about you. When I'm around when we're, when we're my family, we're all doing our bit. Sure. We're all play, we all play, and we fall into our roles very quickly. And it's clear that that's their role, and they got it. And, and listen, it's funny. It's funny to watch. And, you know, it's – I mean, I remember – you know, just sitting there and just watching that is, is that's the price of admission, man. That's awesome, man. And honestly, it does fascinate me. And that really the Bushes took to you as they did and afforded you that kind of access and certainly Clinton as well. Uh, man, are you going to get a chance? Do you think uh, to see Hillary while she's running? Uh, you know, the funny part was I was trying. She was actually staying in the hotel we were staying at. And I was trying. I was determined to get over there. And I missed her by like, I mean, truly it must have been like by matter of an hour or two oh, that's um but who knows you know listen god knows that you know you, you can't guess anything in politics right now it, it's crazy times understood the uh i wanted to ask too because i keep reading about the ebook market versus uh the physical book market i thought i read somewhere that ebooks were kind of you know actually taking a little bit of a dip and as you experience with each children's book and novel as well, and also your nonfiction, your lost history and decoded books. Any sense of where the market is? Have ebooks kind of taken that same place that streaming television and cable did, where initially they might have been seen as a threat, ebooks, but really now they're it's like, no, it's just another option. It's a different audience and stuff. I, I don't know what your observations have been. Yeah, as, you know, my yeah and listen, ebooks have definitely um statistically We've even seen them kind of plateau a little bit more. They, the growth is just not there that it used to be. What I think is fascinating, I will say on the kids' book market, we don't, we barely sell any books on the kids' side because for the kids' books, people want a book in their hands when they sit with their kids. Absolutely. They don't want to show them a screen. They're now around enough screens. So we actually sell very few e-books 
we sell, but we sell a ton of my thrillers by ebook, like sure. through iTunes and through Amazon. Like that's what we sell the most. That's how I've been we buying them the last. We, you know, that's how I've been yeah, buying the last know. couple Listen, of editions. Absolutely. God bless you for buying them. I mean, oh yeah, sell, I mean, that's still the majority of our sales are through ebooks. I will say though, what the ebook market did. People think the ebook market cannibalized the hardback market. It didn't. What the ebook market cannibalized was paperback market. The paperback market was devastated by the ebook. I can see that. The way it used to be is, you know, you pay like twenty dollars for a hardcover, but I didn't. I couldn't afford when I started writing. I didn't have the money to pay for a hardcover. I would sure. wait a year and I'd say I'm going to pay seven ninety nine yep. for my paperback. I'll wait a year. I don't care. I didn't have the money. Yep. I didn't buy a hardcover book until I was out of college. I couldn't afford it. I was going to say, you and, just described uh, my college years. Absolutely, man. No, definitely. Right? And I remember I remember going around and being like, who has 40% off? Can I get 50% off? <laughs> like, I wouldn't buy a book until it was done. And um, But what, what happened was is that's because it was a $20 book versus a $7.99 book, $6.99 book. But now um, you can have a $20 hardback, but when you compare that to really like a $12 ebook like the difference between eight dollars and twelve dollars for the paperback is is so much smaller mm-hmm. that people are like you know what for four bucks i'll just take it and i won't have to wait the year and so what really got that you know what really got decimated was that paperback market paperbacks used to be a massive part of your bookstore yes and they're just not anymore they're just not well, and then there's the bookstore in general, and I mean, thank God there there are pockets of them that still continue and thrive, and not only uh, the the big chains, but also the independent books. I uh, I find myself, and I'm really glad I moved back to the city proper, Chicago, and we still have a thriving used book uh, market because I'm peppering my bookcase with a lot of older stuff that uh, I, I'm I'm still finding in the used bookstores, and especially, like, you know, and as evidenced by wanting to talk about Lucille Ball and stuff like that, I am all about the biographies of old uh, filmmakers and entertainers. Yeah, because you're and, building a library. You're building a library. We only put on our shelves where we want our friends to see that we bought <laughs> You're right, man. You're right. <laughs> and that's what we do. I, I, that's actually one of my other New Year's resolutions, is I'm done doing that. I'm done doing stuff to impress people. Like, you know what? Like... I don't care. You can see that, you know, I love whatever dumb movie it might be, you know, pick whatever it might like. But that's what we do, right? We all feel like there's some kind of like as if a reality show should break out at this moment. We want to make sure that we look cool on TV and that our bookshelves look cool. But like free yourself, man. Like free yourself and just buy what you love. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. And I still do and everything. But, yeah, I just I don't know. I'm Because I'm finding those are the things I can't find electronically and everything and it is those yeah, rare no, and that's good right and, that, and that's fun that's fun i do like find old stuff that i can't find anywhere else that's yeah. sure good well, i'm gonna leave you with this i'm gonna leave you with this because it just happened and it's, it's never happened before so i just so I'm, I'm headed right now as i talk to you i'm headed toward key west and the reason that i'm headed i have this this event that i have to do for i'm helen keller and um and i just passed this well we're headed deja vu and i'm like whoa i just had this moment here and the key is where I've been here before, and I realized I had written in the president's shadow a scene that took place exactly where I drove through, but I never have been here before. I actually found it on Google Maps on Street View, and I just drove through while on the phone with you the Street View version that I've imagined in my head and put in the pages of the president's shadow and then came to the in reality, and it was like walking through my own dream. It was just pretty awesome. That's excellent. So which, which, which means as I leave you, that I can no longer distinguish between reality and my own shit I make up. (laughs) 
<laughs> hey, send me an email of what's happening TV wise. I won't keep you on the phone, but I want I do want the listeners to know if there's any, you know, stuff brewing as far as, you know, continuation of lost history or Yeah, we're waiting to hear right now. Okay. Uh, H2 as a network basically uh, is shutting down. They got bought. They're going to be turned into the Vice Network. Oh, wow. So oh, that wow. Means, that means, yeah. So basically, it, Lost History did fantastic. The ratings were incredible. Everyone was thrilled. The problem is, is that H2 as a network is shutting down. So that means yet another network, by having me on it, is now Crater. <laughs> I'm sorry for you, but I can't deny that Vice is incredible, and I'm glad they're getting a network. Cause yeah, that, no, good for them. That's Yeah, I understand, but we want good for you as well. But, uh, well, I'm glad that, you know, your bread and butter. Yeah, the, we're talking to them. We're, we're trying to figure it out right now. We're, we're talking to because we love Lost History. We love doing it. We're, we're trying to figure out what we're doing right now with it. Understood. Dude, you're kicking ass. Keep it up. Well done. And uh, we'll we'll wait a few months, and when the next book drops, we'll talk again. Thank you, brother. Yeah, we'll talk hopefully for Martin Luther King Jr. in January. Oh, sounds great, man. Excellent. And, you know, yeah, and so President Shadow coming out on paperback, but it's available in ebooks and hardback now. And uh, I Am Helen Keller came out two weeks ago. Uh, check it out. You're really, you're going to have a great time with your kids uh, learning some life lessons from Helen Keller and Chris Iliopoulos and Brad Meltzer. So thanks as always, okay. man. Thanks, brother. There we go. I miss him already. Brad Meltzer from just a week ago when we recorded that conversation. And uh, very happy that uh, all of the IM books are doing as well as they are, as well as his thriller novels and his nonfiction work as well. So uh, good to talk to Brad. Uh, I expect that uh, Chris Iliopoulos and or Brad will be uh, coming back very soon to talk about I Am Martin Luther King when that comes out in January. Now let's uh, turn to uh, the variant cover uh, world in comics. Um, I'm not a fan, and I talk about it in this conversation with uh, comic store owner Dal Bush. I love the uh, images. I love the art that everybody generates, and I think it's great. But it is that kind of uh, sports card collectible aspect of comics that I think uh, ruined the market back in the 90s, frankly. And uh, I'm not I, I'm just not a fan of this. And I am always fearful. I, I, I wish comic books were treated as they should be, which is, uh, you know, something to read. Uh, don't get me wrong. I love the art. It's always beautiful. But uh, first and foremost, I want something to read of quality. And uh, we talk about it with Dal Bush and how the variant covers and the deals that uh, retailers need to make with publishers to get them, uh, how they uh, can affect a comic store's bottom line. So from Challengers Comics here in Chicago, uh, here's Dal Bush and I with a quick conversation and part two of Word Balloon. So I'm at Challengers Comics uh, in Wicker Park, one of the neighborhoods of Chicago, and I'm talking to one of the co-owners, Dal Bush, and Challengers has been very vocal, Dal, about uh, the glut of variant covers that are coming our way, especially, am I correct, is it this month, September, that really, like, the shitstorm starts? Uh, it's really October, because that's when the all-new, all-different Marvel stuff is going to be coming out. So October, November are the two catalogs we've seen so far that have an inordinate number of variant covers, um, depending on... The size of the release, like an Invincible Iron Man is going to have a lot of covers, but a smaller title might have maybe a few less variants. But between the hip-hop variants and the normal incentive variants, it's getting way out of hand. I mean, it kind of started out of hand, and now it's out of both hands. It's just crazy. Well, and I don't think people realize the volume of books you have to order to get these variants, right? You can't just special order, or can you? I don't know. I, You know, I, I don't like variants. I respect the uh, income that it generates for the artists uh, in terms of getting gigs, and I can appreciate it to a, to a certain level, 
but I just don't like that baseball card sports memorabilia aspect to comic collecting that I felt killed stuff in the 90s, frankly. So there's all my editorial about it. But tell, let's go back to the original question. How many issues do you have to buy to get some of these variants, or is that a thing? Sure. Well, for the variant covers, both Marvel and DC will usually do a monthly variant theme. Um, DCs are what we call open order, where you don't have to order any additional copies to qualify for it. In fact, you could just buy your normal monthly Green Lantern numbers in the variant for Green Lantern if you prefer to do that. So if a customer requests one of the bombshell variants or the monster variants or the Joker variants, we can fulfill those orders without much of a problem. They're usually even available after the book is shipped. Diamond distributors might have a few extra copies. So, again, if someone finds out later, hey, I saw this cover and I want to get one, we can usually fill that order for a DC theme variant. Marvel variants, they don't do open order generally at all. Um, Once or twice a year, they might do something where they decide, okay, like for the Thor annual, we could order all three covers, whatever we wanted. But generally, when they do theme variants, they're going to be what we call match-to variants, where if you match your orders for, let's say, Drax number one to 150% of a completely different book, like Guardians of the Galaxy 22, then you can order what you want for the hip-hop variant. And those numbers are generally pretty difficult to hit. Marvel doesn't seem to ever calculate a percentage where it's in the store's favor. It's always in their favor. So if they think that a book might sell 100% of another issue's numbers, they might decide to then make the variant orderable at 150% because now they can bump those numbers an additional 50%. And that's even before they account for the variants which it's not like you get them for free after you've qualified, then you can start ordering those. And that little bit of math is usually where it becomes additionally difficult for stores because let's say you would normally have to order 50 copies of a book because you think that's what you can sell. Well, to qualify for a variant, you might have to order 80 copies. So now you're ordering 30 extra copies to get the variant. Now, the variant copies you're going to sell might be copies that you would have normally sold out of your normal allotment. Right. So now you've ordered, let's say, 20 copies of the hip-hop variant because you've got people who are interested. Well, now you took what was 50 copies of a book you're going to order, and now you're at 100 copies. And while you may sell all 20 of those hip-hop covers, you're not necessarily going to sell an additional 30 copies of your main cover. So now you've got 30 extra comics left over. You didn't really make any money doing this. You, it was nice that you were able to help out your customers, but in doing so, you've kind of put yourself at a deficit. That's the thing that I think a lot of people don't understand about when Marvel publicizes the hip-hop variants. The hoops that stores have to jump through to get those, it's very difficult to be profitable while fulfilling all of those orders. It drives me crazy because, again, this seems to be what were the steps that led to the collapse. It's... The, the, I understand that there's a certain amount of interest in these variant covers, and rightfully so. They're, they're, they're a change of pace. The themes are interesting. God, when Darwin Cook did the – and again, you say DC is a little bit fairer about it. But when Darwin Cook did that month of uh, illustrated covers for Marvels and the like and everything, that was, or for, for the DC line, it was, it was cool. They were fun. They were, they were great and stuff. Um, but again, it seems like they were affordable. If this is what Marvel's doing, I don't think, obviously, they are really helping. Uh, and I think, if anything, it's it's an artificial inflation of comic numbers at the expense of the retailers. And really, the retailers are that first line of customers 
that have to be convinced to buy a product to then sell to their customers. It's really a two-part thing like that, and I, I'm really disappointed to hear that. Yeah, the additional thing that, that worries us, um, since I'll be honest, we're not really a store that, that deals in incentives or invariance. If it's an open order thing and we can stock it for the shelves, we do. A lot of image titles will do A and B covers monthly, and we like to provide that as an alternative for people to pick the cover they're most interested in. Um, How do they do it? Is it just straight-up ordering, or is there is there also incentive buying for those uh, variant covers for Image? Image rarely does incentive variants. Um, I'm really straining to think of the last time they did one might have been for maybe a Walking Dead, possibly, like Issue 100 might have had an incentive variant. But generally, Image as a company, and, and we appreciate this as a retailer, doesn't like stoking that part of the market. They really want something where they're going to grow a reader base rather than just sell you the same book three or four or five times or create a situation where a store is overstocked on something because they can sell a variant at an inflated price. So for the readers, what, what we worry about, since we're not a store that really deals in the variants, is what we saw when Marvel did the two Run the Jewels variant covers. They did variant covers for Howard the Duck and Rocket Raccoon, and we got a lot of requests for those Run the Jewels covers because USA Today had run a story saying that there were these covers and, and the guys from Run the Jewels were supporting it, and it was a huge cross-promotion. A lot of folks that don't read Marvel comics or don't read those specific Marvel titles were really excited about getting something featuring uh, artists they like. The problem was each of those variants was a 1 in 50 variant. So for every 50 copies of Howard the Duck you got, you could buy one of the Run the Jewels Howard the Duck variant. Same thing for Rocket Raccoon. And the thing is, even for us, we're a store that, that promotes titles like Rocket Raccoon and Howard the Duck. I don't. We didn't qualify for those. Like we, we could not move enough units to make that viable, let alone to cover all the people who requested it. And a lot of people don't buy comics, and they were excited about this. And we had to tell them, not only can we not have it for you, there, but if you find it online, it's going to be like a hundred dollars because this is a one in fifty variant. So stores had to order fifty copies of a four dollar book to get one of these, and they're going to want to recoup those costs. Right. And that's. The last thing you want to do is take people who are excited about comics on any level, even if it's just to buy something that they think looks cool. Hopefully they'd read it and they'd find out they like it, but you've already put a huge barrier to that fan. The hip-hop covers are the same thing, where you've got a lot of people who are hearing about them, finding out about them on non-comic sites, and they're going to have a really tough time finding a lot of those covers at their local stores. And if they do find them, a lot of stores are going to end up marking them up, and that's a really sad thing to have people immediately confronted with, well, I can get this much for it online, so I'm going to charge you the same amount. And that's to double all the way back. That's one of the main reasons why we don't sell those incentive variants in the store is just you start doing that where you start taking a $4 comic and saying, well, I can get $20 for it, and then you never stop doing that. And you create this punishment to people who just want to read the book, who don't care about the collectability of it, they don't care about the scarcity of it, they just want to read the story. And now all you're thinking about is this collectible, not this comic book. Exactly. Could informally a, a group of stores get together and just even between themselves unofficially buy 150, like there's, you know, what, whatever is equitable to gain access to those variant covers? Could you guys pool together? And uh, do you have other stores that you are friendly enough with that you could do that so that it would accommodate? Uh, getting enough that each store can get uh, the amount of, of variants that they that they need or they think they might need. 
Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I know multi-store chains that already do that, where okay. they, they spread the numbers around to make sure that they get all the variants they possibly can, the maximum number chain-wide. Um, the difficulty in doing that when you're not in a chain is just getting those books to the right stores at the right time, because in that case, then, we would be receiving them, like, on a Tuesday. Yep. And those would go on sale on a Wednesday, so right. we would have 24 hours to get them to every participating store. And that can be logistically really tricky. And that's above and beyond. One, one store is paying for all of that. One st- then you have to collect from all these different stores. And a lot of comic stores are, you know, paycheck-to-paycheck businesses, week-to-week businesses. So having that uh, essentially three stores worth of Marvel comics show up at one store in one week may not be viable. Um, we haven't really... Uh, investigated that mostly because, again, just logistically, it would be a lot more work for something that, honestly, as much as we like the idea of the, the hip hop variants, the barriers to entry that Marvel's put in has really soured us on the theme of it. Like, it's just made us kind of resent how difficult Marvel's making it on retailers to stock these books for consumers by basically having Marvel go to consumers and saying, hey, demand these books, and then telling retailers, like, well, Customers are going to demand these books. You got to make sure you get them, no matter how much it costs you. Like, that's an unfair move on a company like that. Understood. And uh, I do think that the economics of these things aren't talked about enough, and and also from everyone who has to pay to gain access to these products. And I'm glad that you're telling us about this. Has this been addressed before? Has Marvel been told that uh, you know? I mean, is or has it? Uh, is this an unprecedented amount and size of? having to buy in to get access or have there been other examples of this that are similar um retailers are are generally giving marvel feedback but it's usually in more kind of social media blog post kind of ways i to my knowledge marvel doesn't really have much in the way of a a sales representative department in the same way that dc does really they used to yeah they, they have a sales department essentially i mean they have a point of contact but they have a point of contact they don't have you don't have your own specific representative that you can go to with your concerns or complaints or okay. questions. Oh, interesting. You can send emails and you can hopefully get a response, but, again, hopefully is the word I would use. Really? And is it is it that infrequently that it's kind of a ship in the bo- or a message in a bottle? Um, I, I'll be honest. To, I, to really, like, get to the bottom of something? I haven't tried in a while. Um, okay. It's something that maybe they've improved on it. The last time that, that I would have done that would have been a few years back. At this point, we, we generally don't look to Marvel for feedback on these sort of issues. So maybe I'm being unfair with that. Well, and you're, and you, like you said, it's because of the size of them that you just feel like it doesn't reflect yeah. the kind of product you want to sell and the clientele that you you normally get either. And I, I think the other issue as far as if Marvel is receiving feedback on this is that in general the retail community is not of one mind on these issues. Um, for every store like Challengers that doesn't participate in incentive variants and doesn't sell them in stores – you're going to have stores that love it, that that is the backbone of their market. They are so excited that Marvel's giving them so many opportunities to maximize their profits in October, November. So it's not like, you know, there's torches and pitchforks outside of Marvel okay. Enterprises. Okay. Like it's, it's, it's store by store. There are stores that love it and there are stores that hate it. So if, if I was Marvel Comics, I don't know that I would be able to discern, did we make the right move with this? You know, they, okay. they respond to the market in the same way that any business their size would. And it seems like this is still working for them as a sales tool, so they're going to keep using it until it stops working. Um, The thing that we're afraid of is that as these sort of incentive plans scale up, when they stop working, it gets more and more dangerous. Um, There's a lot of stores that are depending on these strategies 
uh, overwhelmingly. And it's a thing that used to be like an additional profit stream. Now it's the sole profit stream for a lot of these stores. Um, To make these huge buy-ins make sense, you have to be able to flip these 1 in 50, 1 in 100, 1 in 500 variants. And, I mean, when the music stops, like, I'm worried about the stores that are not going to be able to weather that storm, like, to mix metaphors. That's a thing where you've sunk a lot of money in, and the one month that doesn't work for you, you don't have a month after that. Understood. No, I but no, I really appreciate it, Dal. Like I said, I think this perspective is rarely talked about, and even more so that you're even presenting the other side and saying that it's not you know a uh, retailer wide that it really depends on the store, and but also that how long can this continue? Um, Bendis was just on my last episode, and we were just talking about how the cover price of a DC and Marvel book is very different than an Image book, and that uh, you know, good luck. Moving forward, because that is going to be a consumer choice that today's comic creator is going to have to make, and either DC or Marvel might have to reconsider the heights of of what they're charging. I think the image people are showing that they, selling fewer copies, can still get by at, at offering books at a reasonable rate. At least that's my view. Okay, we kind of ended it there. Uh, uh, thank you, Dal. And I am sorry that I didn't thank him uh, in person, but he knew it. He, knew it. Uh, he got busy with customers, so uh, I wanted to let him get back to uh, retail and uh, make money because that's the most important thing rather than talking to me on my podcast. But uh, great to get Dal Bush's opinion. He and Patrick, like I said, they're, they're two of the finest comic book retailers that I know, and I really do value their opinions. In fact, they have their own uh, Challengers Are Go uh, podcast as well, and I suggest you listen of that, they had my buddy Heath Corson on just a couple weeks ago because uh, they had Heath in for a store signing. So, uh, you know, good guys and uh, happy to get Dal's opinion on today's word balloon. To wrap things up, uh, I'm going to bring in a couple other podcasters. Uh, we all talked at Cincy Comic Con just a couple weeks ago. It was a great convention. I know you heard me talk about it all summer. Now you're finally getting the fruits of our endeavors uh, as we roll out the various panels that we did. Uh, I presented two on last week's word balloon. Uh, I've got uh, one today, and uh, there are still plenty to go. Great A-list conversations coming up, and this is a good example. It's the Cincy Comic-Con podcast panel featuring Sean Crystal of Ink Pulp Audio, Wendy Freeman of Double Page Spread, and me. We talk amongst ourselves, we take some questions from the audience, and uh, hopefully you'll get a little bit of insight of what we do each week on our podcasts. So the Cincy Cincy Comic-Con podcast panel, now on Wordboard. Welcome to uh, the Cincy Comic Con's uh, podcasting panel. I'm John Suntress, and I host a podcast called Word Balloon. And uh, I'm very happy to have uh, two fellow podcasters with me to uh, to talk. We've got uh, from Double Page Spread, Wendy Freeman. Hey, friends. And uh, from the Ink Pulp uh, podcast, it's uh, Sean Crystal, fine uh, artist as well as a great podcaster. Hello, hello. So I, uh, I'm interested in why everyone got into podcasting, and I will let you guys t- tell your reasons why, and then I'll, and then I'll tell mine. Okay. But uh, Sean, or, yeah, Wendy, if you oh, want some ladies first, yes. I mean, I just enjoy talking to comic artists so much. I just enjoy talking to creators so much, and I, I love finding out more about the creative process. And I'm coming at it from, you know, like I'm a musician, and I was a recording engineer for a long time, and I just enjoy, like, I wanted do something recording-wise and just, like, capture these really great conversations I've been having at people at conventions, so... And, of course, I was very influenced by Word Balloon. 
Oh, that's yeah, nice. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, 11 o'clock. And, you know, I always enjoyed podcasts so much. So. Did you ever, as a musician, do you ever read Musician Magazine and stuff? I don't know if that was uh, still publishing. I always read, or... like, Modern Drummer. I oh, okay, there you go. For years. <laughs> so I like, I like, you know, in-depth conversations about crafty sure. stuff, you know. And, and art, of course, fascinates me. Comics have always fascinated me, you know. And it's something I don't know so much about. So I liked, uh, yeah, I really enjoy hearing about how it, the similarities of music and, and art and the way people do things. Absolutely, mm-hmm. absolutely. Sean? This is a question I think I'm trying to figure out for myself for as long as I've been doing it. I have a few definite reasons why I know I'm doing it. One, if you've listened to my podcast, I apologize. I'll repeat myself. Um, I was, at the time, I was a full-time professor and full-time artist at Marvel, and I, I didn't feel like my career was moving forward as fast as I would have liked, and I was thinking about I can't I can't work any more than I'm working. What can I do? And and all I did in my studio was listen to podcasts while I was drawing. And um, I thought about what I'm good at. Like I just was thinking down the road, where am I going to be if if this career isn't supporting me? What am I going to be doing? And what am I good at? And I know I really enjoy one-on-one conversations with people. Um, and I have a knack for it. And I, was, and I thought about it as I'm listening to Mark Maron's podcast. Um, all the conversations I've had at conventions kind of tucked away from everyone. Not about comics. Not about fan stuff. More about personal struggles and stuff. And I was like, you know, these conversations I'm listening to, which I was loving, I've had. And being an artist, I've got a perspective on things that I haven't heard in our industry yet. So I thought, this might be fun to get into. And who knows where it's going to lead. So I I didn't really go into it with any expectations other than I felt like there was a, a part of me, a creative side of me, wanting to explore something outside of drawing as well. So that was one kind of reason. Um, The other reason was, being an artist, I had seen in in the community, we're also isolated. Working in in solitary, it's it's like a prison sentence in a lot of ways. A good one, I'm not complaining about what I do, but it it is very solitary. And I also found that I, I, as an artist, would make assumptions about other artists based on not knowing them and what I saw on the page and always found that when I met that person I would do a 180 and it was my own shortcoming definitely but I thought about the industry and how rampant that kind of is amongst us and I was like maybe this would help bring us together more if we all get to hear each other's story there'd be more empathy between us so that's kind of why I started that's great man no and I'm not surprised and I like your podcast in particular because you speak the language of the artist, and I was telling you as we were walking here today that uh, your Howard Chaikin interview in particular recently was just fantastic because he was relaxed, he talked about uh, his inspirations, he gave great stories, and if you know your old comics history, you'd appreciate them. Mm-hmm. It was it was great. It was wonderful to hear. Thank you. Yeah, that was a... Howard's great to talk to. Yeah, he's Absolutely. a dynamic personality to begin with. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. So, and the reason why I got in was um, I have a radio background and um, always wanted to get into radio. Loved radio talk in particular. Really appreciated in-depth interviews. And it's really a shame because as radio becomes more and more homogenized 
And also, good God, advertising. I mean, I'm 50, and I know that the amount of advertising on radio has at least tripled in terms of the amount of commercial time they sell. So to actually have a good conversation on the radio is near impossible, unless it's NPR, and they're not you know, blocked by commercials. But even they take a break after 15 minutes or so. Right. And there's also, and I've heard even Sean refer to this as well, the constant need, because someone might be listening on the, on the radio, to uh, reset. Oh, by the way, if you, yeah. in case you're just joining us, we're talking to Sean Crystal and Wendy Freeman. And it's like, you know, the great thing about podcasting is that you don't have to do that because the person that downloaded knows exactly what they... No, I know I'm listening to a Gilbert Gottfried interview. Right. That's why I came here. Yeah. So you can get right to the conversation. And um, in 2005, I, 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 I have a sports talk background in particular and spent 10 years in Chicago talking uh, to and doing interviews with uh, athletes and Chicago celebrities. Had a great time. And while I was still doing that... Um, the uh, I worked for Sporting News Radio, which is now the Yahoo Sports Network, and Paul Allen was one of the Microsoft billionaires, and he owned the he owned the company, and he had just opened the science fiction museum that's in Seattle, and you know this typical internet startup, his reps would come in every couple months and check in with us, and hey, you know if you got any good ideas, let us know, and we're always open. So I sent this idea, and I said, hey, what if I you know were to do a uh, a uh, you know, one-on-one -on -one interview kind of thing for the museum as you have guests who are going to come and lecture or do a presentation. And uh, they're like, oh, that's a really good idea. They're like, you know, we're going to handle that on stage and stuff. They're like, you know, that sounds like a lot of fun. And, and also they had a comic book exhibit coming up. And I said, you know, talk to some comic book artists and writers. And they go, that's good. You should just do it anyway. And I was like, yeah, I think I'm going to regardless of what their answer was going to be. But they kind of gave it back to me, and I'm glad they did. Um, so I started doing Word Balloon in uh, May of 2005. Wow. Yeah. So, I, you know, honestly, I appreciate you saying that, Sean, because a lot of I, I kind of cringe or smirk at uh, some of the podcasters like, oh, I've been doing this a long time. I've uh, been doing this since uh, 2011. And, oh, really? Oh, I go back to 2009. I'm like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> Please. When I'm like, you started, John, what was podcasting? Like, what, it's the same it, as what it was. No, but pretty mean, much. was it really new in 2005? Yeah. Well, and what uh, podcasts were, were people listening to? Well, there weren't that many. I mean, that's the thing. Come on in, sir, if you want. Are you just, you're just making sure? Okay, excellent. Um, excellent. Like, what, what was the distribution like, too? How it well, it was, you know, um, first there was, well, Adam Curry is kind of the father of, or considered the father of podcasting. And um, without going into his long story, he had a he had an an, uh, an article in a Wired in February of 2005, talking about basically you know to to shorthand what podcasting is, describing it as like internet radio, you can do whatever you want, yeah. um, that kind of thing. I do know that even before Adam Curry, though, that there were online initiatives. Microsoft did one. And actually, Robin Williams had a really good interview show through either Apple or Microsoft. I can't remember which. In the very early 2000s. And it was just one-on-one -on -one interviews, very much like a Mark Maron or whomever. And, um, I didn't even know that. Yeah. So when iTunes started to um, list podcasting in the fall of 2005... In May, I just had I, I got the domain for Word Balloon. I thought that was a clever title, mm -hmm. and uh, got wordballoon.com, and just would post MP3 links to um, my interviews there, and uh, would go on message comic book uh, creator message boards and be like, "Hey, if you like Howard Chaykin, I just did an interview with him. 
you know, here's the link, you know, here's the link to, to get to it and everything. And that's how it started. And I, in fact, Jeff Parker, who's at this show, was one of my very first guests. And I always say that it was great. And I knew I was making at least some sort of impact because Mike Waringo, the late Mike Waringo, emailed me and said, hey, my friend Jeff Parker just did your show and I'm having trouble downloading the, the talk. Would, can you help me? And I was like, yes. And by the way, could you please come on Word Balloon? <laughs> and he said yes. And it was great. Wow. And Mike really was. And I always give it up to him because he really was a great sounding board in terms of what am I doing right? What am I doing wrong? There was a show. It's still around in Austin, Texas, called Fanboy Radio. Scott Hines does it mm -hmm. out of uh, Texas Christian University's uh, college radio station or public radio station. And um, he was before us. And it was like he was in the early 2000s. And then there were things like Nuff Said was a New York public radio show. I know there were a couple public access TV shows in some of the bigger cities that would go to conventions and do interviews and stuff. So as far as comic book podcasting, there were those things. Neil Gorman was an early comic book podcaster who started in late 2004 and would really just do comic book reviews and was like a one-voice guy. Augie DeBleek, who writes for Pipeline at CBR, Comic Book Resources, he was doing it before uh, me. Uh, Comic Geek Speak started about two months before I did. I started in May of 2005. I want to say they started in, in March or April. And, um, yeah, 2005 is kind of that first, like, from Neil Gorman in late 2004 till the end of 2005. That was the first wave. And I Fanboy started in November of 2005. I'm trying to think of who else. How I mean, often do, you, do yours come out? I, do, I try to do at least weekly. And if okay. I don't hit that seven days, I try to get at least four episodes a month. After okay. San Diego, and sometimes if I am really inundated with people, I have a very happy problem of a lot of people wanting to be on the show and also that they have time-sensitive things that they want to talk about. They do want to you know, promote mm -hmm. a book that's coming up. So I try to accommodate them. And usually right after San Diego, I will do like maybe you know six episodes in a, in a month or uh -huh. even eight if I need to. I'm curious to know from you guys how many of your podcasts are recorded in person versus Skype. Mine are definitely majority Skype. Yeah, I'd say I'd, I'd say ninety ten. I mean, I just because you know, I mean, you, you know, it's great um, because because I'm sure, and I don't know how many shows you do a year and stuff. Um, I only do like three or four, and also I rather I really want a long conversation, and I do think yeah. Skype keeps improving. So I know we've got how many podcasters are in the audience? You guys are and are three excellent. So what's your podcast, sir? Uh, comic snobs. Comic snobs. Yes. Okay. And what's your podcast, sir? Mine's called Voices in My Head. Voices in My Head. That's hilarious because I've that was the title of one of my Word Balloon episodes where I did a bunch of uh, my voiceover uh, <laughs> voices in my head. So that's very cool. And I, are they comic book podcasts? I know yours, obviously. It's kind of varied to just whatever I'm interested in. Good for you. Why not? Voices in My Head I didn't want to be stuck with just one. Yeah, that's good. You know, and I, that's why I did Word Balloon because I'm like, it could be anything. You know, and I, you know. And it is interesting. It's interesting, like that idea. Like I, you know, I call my double page spread because I thought that was very, you know, comic related title, and I wanted something that definitely invoked a comic related title. But I find that I'll have guests on all like character actors or small mm -hmm. film people or whatever, you know, and then I try to sort of tie it in. 
but it's it's interesting when you sort of diverge a bit, you know, like when you do things that aren't specifically comic related. Like, how do you deal with that? You've had other people on doing TV shows and stuff. Like, how do I deal with like that? It's non comics, right? Exactly. I don't care. You, I, you know, you don't, yeah, I don't yeah, care. Okay. Yeah, tough. I mean, seriously, it's like, hey, it's whatever I want it to be, and that, yeah, I mean, coming from radio. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah. I, I've had on <laughs> famous authors and musicians at this point, and it's nothing's changed it's still I think people listen to it are going to get the same thing they would yeah. get from it's I mean the way I do it is I, I don't mine's majority comic people but it's more about creative people I, right. I think yeah and that's do. that's exactly what I but that's what I went into I want to get back too. to something we were talking about just a minute ago um, I was asking about Skype and stuff because I feel like for what I do it has to be in person one on one it's such an intimate conversation I have so that limits me in terms of how often I can put it out. Hmm. Um, I, I've, I put it out once a month. Mm-hmm. I did go through a period where I put out two a month, but I, it hit the point where I couldn't keep up with it. So I went back to once a month. But I, I just feel like, I mean, I wrestle with this. Like, sure, if I put out more, it'd be better for the show in terms of people I'd reach, but I'd sacrifice, I think, what the show is. It, well, I understand that, and the good news is you've got enough, I think, of a backlog yeah. Now, because yeah. you're it's close to 50. There. Yeah, you're yeah, close I'm to 50. Yeah, hit 50 um, at the end of the year. Okay. I, so so I think that's okay, and I think that gives people time to, you know, kind of Yeah, it was a slow build, them. but yeah. yeah, I'm building a library. That's all right. What but, episode are you on? I'm closing in on 600. <laughs> wow. Well, and I've been doing it for 10 years. Yeah, that's And awesome. the other thing is, and, I'll, and I'm sure you, you'll appreciate this as an artist, this is like sketching for me. Oh, it sure. really is in term, or just like warm up sketching in terms. So I understand what you're saying in terms of that. For yourself, you need to be you know in the room with the person mm-hmm. to have that connection. And I mean, literally coming from sports radio, we always had people on the phone. We yeah. would have in studio people as well. But talking is talking, interviewing is interviewing, and I like doing, and I know we all do, longer interviews yeah. because that gives the guest a chance to relax and get in that comfort zone where they can speak freely. They're not nervous about how their voice sounds. Right. right. The infamiliarity of, of who they're talking to and stuff. Yeah, I don't... I find, like, it amazing you can do phone and Skype stuff because there's so many cues I'm reading off the person as I'm That's talking. Like, 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 I'd be I, so bad at it. Right, I have a lot of guests who don't want to have the camera on and I kind of enjoy having oh, the Oh, so you have the camera on. Okay. I mean, I like having the camera on because I like being able to see, you know, body language. Yeah, oh, yeah. I see. When you said Skype camera, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. 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 So, I mean, I mean... I don't have the camera. I'm sure everybody, like, <laughs> I don't. any way of video. You're just a pro, yeah. yeah. Well, no, it's just, like... Well, you know, it's funny. Brian Posehn, the comedian... Um, I, I I was in a studio apartment at the time that had really bad AC and it, I mean just sweating all the time and I'm doing an interview with him on a hot summer night him and Jerry Duggan when they were writing Deadpool and um, I, uh, I I'm in like you know gym shorts not wearing a shirt I'm like nobody needs to see this <laughs> so I so I didn't have the camera on and Posehn uh, we're you know we're all getting together on Skype. And Posehn pops on, and his avatar is Brian, naked from the waist up, big belly, and his baby is just literally, like, cradled on his belly. And he's like, hey, how you doing, man? And I'm like, oh, Jesus, man. And I was worried about seeing me, you know, you seeing me. Jesus, I go, you're very comfortable with your sight. Yeah, this is what you get. And I'm like, all right. No problem. He was awesome. He's very funny. Yeah, I'm but, never shirtless on mine. <laughs> <laughs> no, and you know, Wendy, I know you, you do a lot of cool, and you're, you're interested in horror, 
in particular, you get a lot of interesting low budget, you know, Linnea Quigley. Exactly. I love talking to Scream Queens. Like, that's a lot of fun. And once again, like, learning about how independent filmmaking works, and, and they go through all the same sort of trials and tribulations that comic books go through, you know? Oh, like sure. They always had to, they had to crowdsource now, they have, to, yeah. they have distribution problems, they have illegal download problems. Like, it's interesting how we all had these same exact problems, we all had these same exact sort of sure. artistic things going on, and so I like to feel that. I, and, I feel and like, yeah, if you're interested in one thing, then the other type of... Uh, Artistic ventures are just as interesting. Well, just and just like Sean said, no, it's the creative process that in, that kind of interests me and makes me want to do this. And also, um, it's funny. Ryan Brown, the guy who uh, does uh, God Hates Astronauts, he's he's another artist that's downstairs, and he'll be doing a panel with me later today. Um, he asked me, he's like, "Did you ever want to write comics, John?" And I'm like, "Well, I, I got a couple little ideas that, yeah, I wouldn't mind seeing in print." But I, I, you know, whatever. Really, it is the creative process that fascinates me. And also, I used to cover boxing in uh, in sports. And much like boxing, I really think that in comics, but also you can you can apply this to low budget films as well. It's a really interesting time because of the democratization of technology, allowing all of us sure. to make our own thing in a way that, hey, man, when I was coming out of uh, high school. And college, my thought was, all right, if I save like five grand, I could probably build my own home studio. And that way, while I'm waiting to get that right radio job, I can make my own stuff. So maybe if I save up, well, you know, with a desk, even a desktop computer and stuff and, and cheap yeah. audio software, even free audio software like Audacity, you know, get a good microphone and you're up and running. So, so yeah. that, so that yeah. I think is really interesting. That was, and a, that was a, another thing. Was I, at the time when I was thinking about doing this, one of my grad students was a professional uh, musician and audio engineer, and so I just asked him, like, how easy would this be? How much would it cost? And he's like, it'll cost you next to nothing, and it's easy. And he volunteered to be the editor of, of all my content. Is he still doing it? Yeah, he still does it. Still does it. Um, which brings me to a question. Please. Uh, I think it's. I think what we're doing, the fact that we podcast is extremely progressive-minded. Did you get into this, and are, are you making any money off this? Do you have ever, if you're not, do you hope to one day? What What is the end game of all this? And these are questions I haven't answered for myself. I sure. just felt like I needed to. Well, and I think some, of, some yeah. of you who podcast might have that question as well. I mean, I'm incredibly fortunate. I, like, I'm always hustling for sponsors. And, like, right so now, you have sponsors? Yes. Right now I have three sponsors, and I've paid you know, a small amount. Oh, so, good. But, I mean, you know, I figure as long as it covers my, my lips and feet, as long as it covers like, mm -hmm. you know, what it costs me to do things every month, I feel it's a success. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I make money as well. And I mean, I if you listen to Word Balloon, I mentioned Patreon. Uh, I do ask for you know that's crowdfunding for ongoing content versus a Kickstarter, which right. really is or GoFundMe. Someone emailed me that I should open it. I don't make any money off it at all. I'm, I'm not opposed to it. I just I, I didn't when I started. I didn't even think about that. I understand. No, but, and I you know how many, like how what's your listenership like? Well, so let me confess that if I did not have sponsors, if I did not have like some sort of income, if I didn't have somebody to keep me accountable, I wouldn't be putting out as many episodes every uh -huh. month. You know, so like I, I require myself to do three episodes a month, okay. and then I have one week that I consider my breather where I, ha I hustle for guests for the next month. Okay. You know, so I have so I try to keep myself really, really accountable about getting things out on a regular basis. And if I didn't 
have sponsors, if I didn't feel, and if I didn't hear from my listeners too, I'd probably just slack off and do like one or two episodes a month. Yeah. Do you know what your listenership is around? Right. Well, my listenership is around, it's usually around like a thousand downloads per episode. Somewhere. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, and I'm going to give everybody a barometer to measure how you're doing with your podcast because okay. I don't know. everybody, <laughs> it's like poker. Nobody wants to show their hand. And I, and I get that. I can appreciate that. But I also think that you need to know where you are in the world of podcasting. And also, if you do want to approach an advertiser, you've got to be real about where your audience size stacks up with everybody else who's out there. So Yeah, I have no idea about any of this. I have no problem talking about my numbers. Well, and I've got, I mean, that's the thing. Now, Libsyn, for those of you who podcast, uh, who uses Libsyn? Show of hands. Nobody uses Libsyn. Interesting. How do you publish your podcast? Uh, SoundCloud. SoundCloud. Okay, great. I just started doing SoundCloud. And I don't mind SoundCloud, but um, I, I, Libsyn was there from day one. What's the, Libsyn? Libsyn is like an aggregate. I'm such a so, oh, no, it's all right. So <laughs> Libsyn is great. Like, you pay a, a certain storage fee every month, and they distribute your podcast for you to iTunes, to Stitcher, to, like... Uh, you know, Podomatic. So they distribute it to all the various ways that people could download your stuff. And if you, if depending on what kind of package you get, you get um, so much bandwidth that you can upload things each month, and it's uh, prorated each month. But then it's unlimited downloads. So should you get more and more successful, you're not paying for bandwidth, you're, or you're only paying the flat rate. Okay. Libsyn stands for Liberated Syndication, and it's l i b s y n dot com. And you can also They're out of Pittsburgh. app through it, like if they had, you know, like the middle yep. tier, you can have your own app, you can do all kinds of things. About Absolutely. It. Yeah. So um, they also, they have a podcast about podcasting to kind of help people out. And Rob Walsh is their VP of pop- podcast relations. And I always keep their stats. And every few months, they will crunch the numbers because they are the largest podcast provider, mm-hmm. bandwidth provider. So in May of 2015... They gave this measurement, and what they did was they looked at statistics of a podcast episode, single episode. First, they only counted shows that put out at least three episodes a month. Okay. Or, yes, I think it was three episodes a month, and they considered them an active podcaster. Okay. Um, and what they looked at was after a single episode had been out for 30 days... They figure by that time your core audience has had a chance to download it. Mm-hmm. So that's what they're measuring. After 30 days, one episode. If you have over 160 downloads after 30 days, you're already in the top 50% of podcasters. Wow. Only 160 listeners. Wow. But that's everybody. So that's from the Nerdist and Adam Carolla and right. Mark Marin to, hi, I'm Jimmy, this is what I ate for lunch today. <laughs> all right? Literally. Lunch all the time. Literally. <laughs> Jimmy's lunch. There you go. If you have over 1,300 downloads in a month, you're in the top 20%. Hey, I'm doing pretty good. <laughs> if you have over 3,400 downloads, you're in the top 10%. Wow. If you have over 9,000 downloads, not even 10 yet, 9,000 downloads, you're in the top 5%. And then they don't give us any uh, statistics between 5 and 1%, but the one percenters get over 50,000 downloads per episode. Wow. So, and obviously, like, you know, Marin, when Mark Marin had Obama, yeah, yeah. it was a million. Huge. Corolla always says that he gets six figures, I think, mm-hmm. for an episode in a week. You know, I've never heard the Nerdist talk about his numbers, whatever. Uh, actually, no, I don't mean the, like, whatever, because uh, Chris Hardwick, I've had a couple of conversations. Very nice guy, very helpful guy. You know, totally gets it, and it's just like, hey, we're all doing this. Why not? It's fun. 
and you know, and then has the right attitude about it. So, and the other thing to do is honestly, personally, because of that, unless you know an advertiser that you're dealing with, I would say you really should wait until you have a couple thousand downloads of a core audience before you go after advertisers because these things are measured uh, as far as rates to advertisers. Um, they do CPM, which is an abbreviation for cost per, even though the M, it's a thousand. Mm-hmm. And I forget what, you know, millennium, I guess, is, you know, or whatever so the Latin is for You approach 1, the advertiser, they don't approach you. I've had both okay. because I've been around a long time. Right. Um, and I only started uh, doing advertising after the first couple of years. It wasn't until about 2008, about three years in, because I felt like I had a big enough audience to justify it. I was very lucky. When I got in, there weren't, there were literally, I, I always use the George Burns joke in terms of, well, you know, we were all in the top 10 in the golden age of radio doing comedy shows because there was only eight of us. So, yeah, we were all in the top ten. And, uh, you know, I mean, that's kind of how it was with comic book podcasting. There were less than a dozen comic book podcasts when I started. There are hundreds now, if not thousands. And, um, God, I forget. um, I saw another recent study. It's great. Ever since Serial, the NPR podcast, now everybody's talking about podcasting. Everybody has an – all the experts have opinions on podcasts, and all of a sudden we're starting to get real hard data. Yeah, so, and that's why I'm happy to share this monthly yesterday. data and stuff. Yeah, there was a radio executive who does work for a podcast company now. And, and I understood where he was coming from. But he basically said, you know, podcasts should really limit themselves to about 25 minutes. Because, and, and his, reason, his reasoning why was, and he has the data, and it's funny because he emailed me back. Uh, the, 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 he has data to back it up that if something isn't interesting to a listener, they're going to not finish it. And, you know, might, might only listen to, like, the first couple of minutes. And he used the example of an NPR feature that was presented in podcast form and said, wow, their numbers, I mean, things drop off right away. And I wrote and said, well, if you're con- – I, I worry more about your content being interesting. Yeah, exactly. Rather than like – I'll listen to a four-hour podcast if it's interesting. Like, I love that. I completely also, agree. the context in which people are listening. Like, for example, driving in the car. Yeah, well, right. A lot of people listen to work. Yeah, you know, you know that's people- a good point because mm-hmm. if they're in a 25-minute commute, that might be why the data stops there. Right. right. Well, exactly. or, or again, the content of it and yeah, stuff. Yeah, it's yeah. like, yeah, but, you know, all those things are valid, and that's what I'm saying. And, and – I said, I'm sorry, but I disagree. And and he also comes from a radio background as well. And I said, I'm like, you know, you're stuck in your radio paradigm. Yeah. This is the then, point of podcasting is it's as long as it – your podcast should be as long as it needs to be. By all, by all means, have a very judicious mindset of, all right, you know something, that part of the conversation really didn't go anywhere. We don't need that. Let's cut that out. You should be – and then honestly, I should likely it? be more – oh, sure. Do you edit? Sure. I, I, it's interesting. Like, I try to edit things, like, if things are, if there are big gaps, that there's sort of, like, sounds and stuff. A lot of times I'll have people ask me, like, hey, can you go back? Can you edit out all the ums and ahs? Like, no. Because then you have, then it, then the conversations have literally stilted. Like, if you take out well, certain things. Well, I don't touch kinda, mine. Yeah. I record And that's fine, it, too. That's yeah, what you That's, that's fine. That's totally, yeah. Well, yeah. That was cool, too. But also. That's, I, I kind of like that about podcasts. It's, like, so DIY, mm-hmm. punk rock. Like sure. This. <laughs> And I had a lot of people like on my I second episode that I think it was the second one I released, second one I recorded was with Sean Murphy, and we were just drinking, and you hear the the ice clink. Oh yeah, that's the fine. Glass I like the whole that. Time. I like and he's like, "Aren't you worried about that?" I'm like, "It's texture," and everyone yes. that listens to it 
loves that. Audio language. verte. Yeah. Okay. As opposed yeah. to cinema verte. It's, right. it's, it is. It's, it's real. Like, it's real. Even to the point where, like, when I did Becky Cloonan, the first part, you hear a lot of ice clink around. Then the second part, people are like, where's the ice? I don't hear the ice. <laughs> it's funny because, yeah, like, I'll have people respond to me and they'll be like, what was that weird noise when you did such and such? You know, it's like, well, that's how I know they're listening. Yeah, and it creates that's an intimacy. People are really paying attention. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I like that. No, I would agree. I, I, uh, I, like I said, it was it. You know, God, I put I posted that article on Facebook that the guy wrote, and the talk back yeah, from I it, so. I got both. I got people going, you know, you know, your show is too long, or I got people going, no, you're, you, 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 I love your show. I got it. I thank you, man. I, one of the guys in the audience said, and his and wife or girlfriend, forgive me, uh, you know, are like, uh, oh God, you know, we, we spent four hours listening to your you know show on the drive here, and I'm apologize to to the lady uh, <laughs> because yeah, I well, I really do. I feel for people. Who, and I'm I'm pleased that some people will do that and be like, oh yeah, we listen to it on, on the ride or whatever. Me and my wife, and sometimes I'll get like a look from a girlfriend or a wife, and I'll be like, yeah, that was great. <laughs> you know, it's like, sorry, man, I apologize. Because the the intimacy is what I love about radio, and is what made me want to be in radio versus television. And I've had opportunities in both. I like radio better. I like I liked the fact that there is less need for a full support staff in radio. There's even less in podcasting. You can literally do it yourself. I can do it on my time. I'll have a guest like Brian Bendis, who's in Portland while I'm in Chicago and we're two hours apart. I'm a night owl anyway. He works best at night. His kids are asleep. His wife is asleep. And we'll have a, a conversation that starts my time at midnight. And we might go for two or three hours. And it's great. And it's, you know, again, it's really easy for me to do. And I know that um, Fanboy Radio used to get mad because he had developed a relationship with Brian. But his show was tied to these radio trappings because it was on uh, Texas Christian's public radio station. So he could only do it on Sunday night live or Wednesday. And, and it's like, hey, I don't like that you've gotten Brian. And I'm like, well, I can talk to Brian at 2 in the morning. You gotta wait till Sunday night at six o'clock to talk to Brian and hope that he's available at Sunday night. Yeah, that's at six. not fair to be mad at you about their yeah. time. No, it's, it's, he I got over. Scott got over. What's going on with new media is the the artists, the creator, including the podcasters. In that, um, we we're taking control back. Exactly. Well, the corporations are not a part of the equation. Bingo. And so radio bingo. has become all these corporate trappings. That in podcasting you have to worry about. That's right. And in comics, you're seeing the same thing. All uh, well, that's where I was going, Sean, because that's why I say I, I really think that what's happening creatively, we are at a very interesting time for everything that Sean just said. Because, and like I said, the democratization of the technology, it makes it easier. Mm-hmm. We all can make our own stuff. Artists are doing it with music. Filmmakers are doing it. We're even seeing it happening now in television and stuff. And it's a very interesting and exciting time. And also, the corporations with this new media, they know literally as much as we do, which is nothing. Yeah. Because it's the beginning of this whole era. And even me doing it for 10 years, it's really, there is no, not much of a difference between a, a podcast that started in 2010 and me in 2005. It's, we all are in the same boat. It's still the mass audience as it continues to grow. And that's the good news that more people are discovering podcasts and stuff and liking them. It's still the new frontier. And they know, and I'm telling you, because I still work in radio, the radio execs know just as much as I do, which is nothing. Yeah. And they think that they're very smug. And even the guy who wrote this article was nicer to me than I was to him because I'm like, you're wrong. And he's like, well, you know, I've got data to back this up. And I'm like, I understand. But you're still thinking about radio. 
and I go, you know, this is different. And if you're not treating it differently, you're in the, you're you're in the, going in the wrong direction. So I do want to open it up if people have questions and, and want to share anything. So yeah, please, sir. Uh, I was kind of thinking going back a little bit to your previous conversation a lot with uh, listener engagement. Now uh, we've started to get uh, an influx of listens who kind of gone to more of an interview format. But what we'd really like to do is see more people interacting with the podcast, if your comments do out, or even just likes. Well, I know, like, some people do things, like, they'll tape it as a Google Plus Hangout, so, like, people can type in, and they can, you know, send send live questions and do things like that. I know there are some podcasts that do it like that. Any kind of call of actions that you guys generally do, maybe at the beginning or end, something that kind of makes sort of a habit of, you know, or speaking directly to? Well, in terms of, like, to engage the audience more? I mean, obviously, we see the listens, but um, just for what, and again, too, this is kind of going back to the net advertisers of, being able to kind of get that sort of data, like, well, we have people listening, but how many people go all the way? How many people are really engaging with it? Um, for me, kind of think on the advertising level, which is another additional way to say, sure, sure. Well, you know, outside of downloads, yeah. If you, I mean, if you've got that kind of proof, I haven't been asked from advertisers for that kind of engagement proof. They pretty much do understand that they are looking for your download numbers. And um, so they still kind of treat it from that standpoint a bit more traditionally. Oh, sure. Also, oh, yeah. The thing of course. I always get from advertisers is they want to give you a code. Like whenever you hear somebody yes. on a podcast and they say, oh, use, you know, use double right. spread as right. a coupon code, that. that lets the advertisers know how many people are coming to them. From right, Boston. right. And I've had that as well. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it's interesting, though, because there are even through social media, Word will get out. I had a thing with Instaprint, which, and I forget what they call themselves. Is it? Is, do they still call them that? The T-shirt, the custom T-shirt uh, company. It's a custom T-shirt. Yeah, Custom Ink. Exactly. Now they're called Custom Ink. Mm-hmm. Um, they set up a campaign with me one Christmas, and I put out the code and my code and stuff. One of my listeners let uh, people who are coupon hunters know about the code online, and. Custom Inc. was like, well, you did good, but um, one of your listeners like put that code on a you know social media coupon site, and I know, we know we got people from them as well. And I'm like, that still counts, right? Oh, yeah. And they're like, well, yeah, but we were really hoping for more directly from you. And I'm like, well, I'm sorry, but you have to realize the realities of the universe, and also that I do have a passionate audience that is spreading the word. Yeah, isn't that what you want? Yeah. So, unfortunately, sales, advertisers, you know, will you know they it it depends. But really, they're like, well, you did fine, thank you, but they didn't come back, and it's like, okay, what are you going to do? And then the other ones are um, an animation company that's well known, and I won't name them. Funko. Uh, Funimation, <laughs> rather, not Funko, Funimation. Uh, here, I'll even do it. Funimation. Um, no, they uh, they wanted to do it, and they were lowballing me on ad on ads. And I'm, and they're like, well, that's a lot of money. And I'm like, well, I have thousands of listeners. And, and they're like, well, you don't have hundreds of thousands of listeners. I'm like, no, I don't. But I do have several thousand listeners. And uh, if you're not happy with these rates, go away. Because, uh, you know, I don't, uh, I'm, not, I'm not living off of my podcast. And I also, like, so don't sell yourself short, but also don't think, well, you know, I've got a thousand listeners. I mean, my God, where's, where's the money? Or focusing on local advertisers instead of kind of going the national side, obviously, until we 
Well, right. once again, think outside the box. Like, think, yes. you know, constantly, like, I, my, one of my sponsors is uh, Black Phoenix Alchemy Lab, who create, like, uh, scents based on, they create, like, fragrances based on Neil Gaiman books and stuff like that. And I thought to myself, like, you know, it's not traditional comic stuff or whatever, but I was like, I can reach out to them and tell them, well, I have a large female fan base or I have a large whatever, you know. And so I'm always thinking about, like, uh, what, you know, like, there's a lot of comic fans who drink beer. I can reach out to the beer companies. Mm-hmm. I can reach out to all these, like, little independent companies. A lot of those, like, little coffee places and stuff like that. Like, think about things that, like, you're interested in. Because if you're interested in them, then your listeners are probably interested in that, too. So. Wow. Yeah, and I think it would help, too, because, really, when you listen to even the big players, like the Marins and the Corollas, it's... They're all the same advertisers. It's yeah. MailChimp. It's Trunk Me Club. You know, yeah, yeah. and I mean, on the one hand, it's smart because they are again tapping into companies that rely on social media to get the word out anyway, just as podcasts do. So it's smart. But I also think that it's like, well, if you're all using the same, uh, you know, advertisers, so yeah, it's important to localize and also, you know, get the idea of like who's, you know, whose product will fit. Like Wendy was saying too, with the fragrances and stuff. I mean, that's smart. That's really creative and smart, and that's what you need to show. And, you know, I, I just – but don't do it with the idea, just like Sean said. I, I agree. Don't, don't do it with the idea of, like, hey, I'm going to get rich or this is going to happen or whatever. You know, it might. It may not. And so you better enjoy what you're doing, which I'm sure you all do. And, and you know, you can't, you can't rely on it. But, I, you know, as far as – because I'm, I'm interested in what you guys think as well, and you, you touched on this, Sean. Um, it's a really interesting time specifically in the comic book world. And it's something that I'm going to talk about in some of the other panels with uh, the creators. Um, not only through image, not only through crowdfunding, but there are so many different ways of getting your work out there right now. That, as we were saying about uh, podcasting and broadcasting, the publishing corporations don't know what's going on. And I really think that we are at the very beginning of a huge shift in the market. And I think DC is realizing it with the response to the changes that they've made that started in June post uh, their Convergence event. And I think Marvel, we will see what happens with the all new, all different. And a lot of my friends are working at Marvel and I wish them no ill, but both companies are flirting with $4.99 as a magazine cover price. Whereas the self-creators are sticking with uh, $3, $3.50. You know, certainly there are web comics and, and things like that. Um, they're much more cost conscious because they don't have the infrastructure that the corporations have, so they can afford to make their books cheaper. And a book that sells eight thousand dollars, an independent creator could likely live on. Right. Versus DC and Marvel, where they're like, uh, we got only seventeen thousand. Yeah, that's twice uh, more than twice that, and they're like, "We better cancel this book because it's not getting real thing going on right now." I can make more money selling seventeen thousand on an image book than I could selling seventy thousand at Marvel. Scott Snyder said that about witches, his image book versus what he makes on Batman. <laughs> Jesus Christ! I mean, and that, and again, they've got the gall to think, well, you know, four ninety nine. You know, that's not that expensive, and it's like. Good luck. And then there was Good you know, the thing recently with like the Twix ad, you know, like how the, the comics in that group. I gotta be honest. I gotta be honest. Fuck everyone who hates those Twix ads. Excuse me. But really, sorry folks. Are you talking uh, about the ads that were in the middle with, of the yeah, with, yeah. Right, right. Well, let me let me just give you another perspective. Yeah, please, go ahead. Because I spend a lot of time figuring out the design and read of a page. And if someone were to come in and disrupt the work I had done, 
then the art form is compromised. I get that. And that's, that, I mean, that's just where I was coming from with it. I'm and not I, complaining that the ads suck. Well, you're an I, artist, though, and I can appreciate from an yeah, artistic I mean, standpoint. I mean, if, if think about it this way. If you took any of Will Eisner's graphic novel pages and chopped it in half, the story is completely disrupted. Well, and it would be, it would be smart of the, the publisher to let an artist know. Yeah, if yes. you know that going in and can, exactly. can design around it, right, that, that's, that's a different thing. You think about it when you reconfigure it for the Instead trade. of just right. saying, with every page you do, consider that you'll have to lose half of it right that's insane but also uh, just there's this entitlement from this uh, audience that like well I've never seen that before and it's like well I'm Jeez. sorry uh, being old I have seen this before it, it was happening when I was a very small child and actually there were more house ads rather than an independent you know advertiser like Twix or whoever and and it's like Get over yourselves, but totally from an no, artistic no, I, standpoint. I, I well, then I'm, I'm saying I'm saying the reader. I'm saying the reader, Sean. I agree with you from an artistic. But standpoint. I'm saying it can work if you if you're involved if you know. in the equation, right? If you know and to not involve you well, in the I mean, equation. Well, I grew up with ads for grit, selling grit, right? Well, and and, and that's the thing. You know, advertising is saying new. So yeah, in the middle, but it, but it, but I'm saying half page ads. Right. Yeah. Like I'm literally saying. That, you know, no, all of a sudden it was like, oh, by the way, House of, this is coming up next month in House of Mystery. You don't want to miss it. And it's like, all right. And, and it's just like, okay, fine. Yeah, that's fine. Just if the script can know, the right. writer can oh, know, absolutely. and then I can know, then, then it's fine. That's not a sure. problem. Sure. Sorry, I'm going to ask a couple questions. No, 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 no. This is by all means. I'm interested to, we recently kind of transitioned from where we just talk a whole bunch about stuff we like, moving into interviews, and kind of prepping before, I'm interested to see what kind of... Um, you know, methods that you take to research your subjects and say how long that you will you know, take that time before you as much as I feel like I need before I'm comfortable talking to the person I mean you know go into it with your own personal enthusiasm don't just talk to and I'm not saying you are but I would say in general don't just talk to an X-Men artist if you don't give a shit about the X-Men um, you know there are there, there have been at conventions panels where I've been asked, hey, would you like to moderate so-and-so's panel? And it's like, you know, I, I'm not comfortable and don't have the time to prepare. This show is great because several times I've done interviews with artists that I really didn't, it's not that I didn't like them, I just really didn't have an opinion. And doing the, preparing for the interviews forced me to really think about their work and it, and it made for an interesting thing. But I'm kind of lucky because I'm kind of a, idiot savant where I really like to not that I'm more idiot and less savant <laughs> let's be honest but but I am I just I'm, or as my uh, friend in radio Dan McNeil used to say I'm a vidiot where I just I like if I like something I, I need to know everything about it so I you know whether it's the superheroes and, and, and concepts that I love or specifically writers and artists I'm a huge fan and I'm voracious and I read everything and I, and I watch everything so I am, if I really, got it's been a long time, I really have wanted to talk to this person forever, I am ready to talk to them. And also, having done 10 years of sports talk radio prior to starting my podcast, kind of got all my own self-conscious fears out. So what I do to prepare for an interview is I kind of have that bullet points, and I'll have them on a pad with me, and I'll go through them if I find there's a lull in the conversation. But I also try to leave enough room so that it's, well, you know, you know well, when did you start the comic? Well, um, you know, this is about ten years ago. I had just killed those six people in that abandoned building. <laughs> and I finished burying the bodies. And I, well, okay, when you're done with that, let's get back to the bodies that you buried in that basement. Well, no, or, you know, uh, well, I just finished, uh, you know, I, I, for years, I would, Phil Hartman, the comedian, that Saturday Night Live that passed away, 
before he was ever in comedy, he was a graphic artist, and he worked for Electra Asylum and did a lot of album covers of Linda Ronstadt and the band America and a lot of big acts from the 70s. And his work was there. And we're like, we had him on our sports station. And it's like, oh, my God, tell us about working in the music industry. What was that like, Phil Hartman? We were ready to talk about SNL. This is in the, you know, 20 years ago, back in the mid-90s and stuff. And it was great. And he was like, oh, yeah, you know, I had a really funny story. Or um, Henry Blake uh, from MASH, McLean Stevenson, before he passed away. Um, we didn't know. We, we just thought he was a funny guy, and we knew he was from Ch- the Chicago area. He worked at Northwestern University's uh, sports information office. And he had hilarious stories about coaches and the basketball program and the football program in the 60s and 70s. And great stories. And we are crying. And it's just like... We have never heard McLean Stevenson tell these stories on The Tonight Show or wherever he's been in whatever comedic venue. So you leave yourself open for those kinds of opportunities. Right. I feel like dialogue, like opening up dialogue, like exactly, really being a good listener. And also, like, so for example, I'll try to keep up on who's got a Kickstarter coming out, who's got something that they need to promote. And I'll try to reach out to people through Twitter, through Facebook. Like, I'll be really annoying. I don't care. I'll go out there and I'll badger people and I'll do whatever I need to because I know that they need attention and I'm more than happy to provide them with that. But then also, yeah, like finding out personal things, finding out things like, you know, little known things and being able to open a conversation based on that is always the the best. Yeah, I'm probably bad to ask because I do no prep work. (laughs) Um, A lot of the people I've interviewed I know just from working, but uh, there's a healthy amount of interviews I did where I knew nothing. Um... And I kind of really enjoy those because as I'm getting to know them, the reader, the, the listener is going through that experience. I, I guess I just throw myself into deep water and, and hope I swim. And I haven't had any problems. I, I just, I don't know. I've, I don't know if it's luck or it's, I don't know what it is. It just works for me that way. You know, you had an interview with, um, and you don't have to go into detail of why you decided to pull it, but you had an interview with Robbie Rodriguez, and I didn't even hear it because all I heard was your your kind of explanation of why this isn't there anymore. And I found that interesting. Have have you guys had um, interviews that you've decided that, you know, something that didn't work out, I'm going to bail? I have one thing, and I'm, I'm very, I talk to my guests before I go live, and I say, is there anything you want to stay away from? I have very rarely had anyone say, yeah, I want to stay away from this. And the rare time where they've said that, it's something I really had no interest in. It was industry gossip. And that's not what my podcast is. Um, so, and then when I'm done, they're like, they ask me, so do you edit? You know, and I'm like, I don't. It's, this is the conversation. It's whole. That's the craft of what I do here. So if you're uncomfortable with it, I won't put it out. Um, There have been a few. The Robbie one was some situations where, like I said, there was some self-destructive behavior in there that upon putting it out was like, whoa, maybe I shouldn't have that out there. And once the guest feels like, oh, shit, this is out there, I don't want them hurt by anything we do, so I'll pull it. I've recorded a few that I didn't ever put out because... um, the guest wasn't comfortable with it. Not not that they said anything wrong, but there was one I did with an artist um, where I was really trying... He had this really interesting kind of... He was a, a rock star, too, and an artist now. 
and I just wanted all these like crazy rock star stories. But he's in a very serious relationship at the time, and he's really focused on that relationship. And so he was very resistant to the questions, and we did fine, I thought. But at the end, I felt like it, it didn't work. So I asked him, I was like, were you staying away from that? Because he was like, yeah, I just didn't want that creeping into my life now. So it didn't work. But that's rare for me. Yeah, no, the only times I really yanked anything was in technical problems, pretty much. Okay. But yeah, once again, I did the same thing. Like, I want to make sure that we're not accidentally revealing something that they're not allowed to talk about, or I'm not bringing up, I'm not touching on a touchy subject or something. Yeah, I, and, and forgive me, folks, but, you know, whether you want it or not, some free advice in terms of interviews. Um, don't take yourself so seriously because, especially if you're doing comic books, because as, like, every now and then people will get relaxed on my show. They'll say something that they realize, oh, you know something, that that book isn't supposed to be talked about yet. Would you mind cutting it out? And I'm like, of course I don't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I don't want to jeopardize their career. you got to remember... Your podcast is your living room. You are asking people into your living room. It's up to you if you want to. Boy, I've wanted to tell Bill Willingham what I think of him for years, and I'm, God damn it, I'm going to do it today. You wouldn't do that to somebody and, and do that in your living room. I would think. Most, most people would. Most reasonable people. So you're not Matt Drudge, and I can't think of a current... Sean, you know, and I'm only going to think of conservatives, so, uh, you know, Michael Moore, I don't know, uh, if you can think of a liberal person that asks pointed questions. This isn't saving the world. No one is keeping the cure from cancer from anyone. <laughs> if, you know, well, I'm sorry, you, you told me that you're writing Superman, and uh, I'm sorry if DC's not going to, uh, I've got it, so I'm, I'm running with it. Yeah, we're not hey, Lois Lane, no. sit down. Sit down. It's, I, because really, to reassure my, my, my guests as well, it's like, guys, it's fucking comic books. Yeah. I'm like, you know, don't, I'm not here to screw up anybody's career or make them regret, you know, something yeah. that they, they've said in a moment of relaxation or, you know, I'm, brainies. I'm, I'm lucky in that what I'm doing, it, we don't address any of that Industry stuff. stuff. But also people now, um, most people come on kind of have an idea of what my podcast is and they kind of some people have come on almost as a confessional to some extent it's like true. Cully Hamner who I, I know Cully and, and we're good friends and I, of course I'd want to have him on I want to have everybody on but he contacted me about wanting to come on and I really didn't know why and through the course of talking to him it was obvious why he wanted to let this out and um, I've had a lot of people like I did Cameron Stewart yesterday and a lot of people say this, as I start going in with the questions, they're like, well, that this is about being honest, so I'm just going to be honest here rather than hold back. I'm curious, talking to uh, a lot of creatives, all three of you do, um, do you see any patterns emerge? Are there certain things that you've learned about yourself as somebody that's creative that, from talking to other creatives? Absolutely. And I'm sure uh, Sean will agree with this as well, <laughs> that there's no such thing as an overnight success. No such thing. No. Every great creator, even if it seems like, wow, that guy came out of nowhere. They have a story. They have a story, and they have several years, if not ten at least. They've, it, they've earned it. Yeah, they've the the it. average I've found is ten years. So I'm kind of like, hey, I'm at my tenth year. Yeah, where's, where's my check? If you, you know? my podcast, <laughs> For my podcast. Yeah, I'm kidding. You know that my first job um, came to me after four years of trying to get a job, but my second job was ten years after that. And uh, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, no, no. So, yeah, it's, it's 
there's no, I mean, a lot of people, and I get it because I, I know this when I was in my post-college years, my immediate post-college years, there's a huge frustration. It's the worst life decade. It is your toughest decade because you are now in the real world. You are not a student anymore. You've got to make it on your own. But it's like your story is not it, everyone's story. We all struggle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We it, all struggle. To build on that, that's, I mean, my podcast is very much about that. Yeah. And finding that, you know, every one of us in, on the creative side of things, podcasting included, we, we're struggling, we're suffering, we're, we're trying to get through this. I mean, I, I, I spoke with Cameron Stewart yesterday, and it's, we talked about how we just look at our art like it's just bad, and we look at everything around us and how good it is. Now, and Cameron, to me, is, is one of my favorite artists, and I think one of the most skilled cartoonists of our generation. And to hear him say that about himself, it, it helps me, and I think it helps my listeners. Um, yeah, yeah, it's just we're all we're all going through something. But I also think that each successive decade, and I'm sorry, Wendy, if you if you wanted to, oh, no, to no, no. I was just going to say each successive decade. The good news is the playing field changes in some intangible way that I do think all of us can take advantage of what's available to us now that wasn't there. Uh, years ago, and I and I mean I, I see that with you know the guys that are on top now that looked at the John Burns and the you know uh, Walt Simonsons and people like that and how different the, the industry was then when there were only you know two or three places to work in the yeah. business to where things are now or where things were in the eighties and nineties. John Byrne and Walt Simonson feel that. I'm, I'm sure they did. These guys, I mean, did they feel that same way? I'm, yeah. I'm curious. Like, yeah. You know, yeah. another thing that yeah, irks me is like you ever see that meme of Jack Kirby where it's like. Jack Kirby was 44 when he created the Fantastic right, Four, and, right. and you know it took him this long. It's like, yeah, but he had been doing so much before. That. Oh yeah, like, well he had, well he had successes and failures. I mean, he created the romance comic, but then also suffered that 50s decline of you know everyone you know the seduction of the innocent period where mm-hmm. comics were evil, and he had to scratch and survive, and he did, but you know had to hang by the skin of his uh, teeth and everything to to afford himself the opportunity that he got eventually, you know, coming back to Marvel and ultimately, you know, making, making the superhero comics of the Marvel age. So, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a constant struggle. So that's all I know. All right. Well, there you go, kids. I, I, well, sir, please. Final question. Um, I've not had a chance to listen to either of the years yet, but I will definitely do that soon. But I've listened to a lot of work over the years. Oh, thank you. Uh, my question is more of a, uh, Looking for a humorous answer if you have one. You don't have to name names or anything. You you always come off as the biggest fan of whoever's on your show. I love that. Really well, it's genuine. I think you make the guests feel like just they're the number one in the universe when they're good. You, have you ever had a guest in you that you felt like, man, I cannot get an answer out of it? Like, like they would just give you one word? I'll tell you who. I'll happily tell you who because it always cracks me up still. And I still, I have to admit, like, real, real fair, in fairness, He's great, he's a genius, and his body of work speaks for itself. I don't know what was up his ass when we talked, but Marv Wolfman was not happy to talk to me. And I just wanted to, like, how did crisis start? You know, I, I tell that story at the forward of every printing of Crisis on Infinite Earths, so I don't think this is anything new, but I'm like, okay. And I mean, and really, like, and I'm like, you know, hey, Marv Wolfman, I'm like, hey, was it, was it inevitable that a guy named Marv Wolfman was going to write Werewolf by Night? No. 
okay. Uh, uh, how much time have we got left? So, you know, I mean, so and literally I've never asked him back as a consequence. And I don't even know if he knows me by face because I, I, please, you know, what? and it's very sweet when people do recognize me or hear my voice. But I am friends with Art and Franco, the Tiny Titans creators, and he loves them. And they, of course, love him because he's Marv Wolfman, for Christ's sake. And I, like I said, I still love Marv Wolfman's work. But I am with them, and he always gives me the fisheye. Always. So I don't even, like, try to say, hi, Marv, how are you, or anything. And the great thing is, so many of his contemporaries are, like, they're like my grandfathers. They're like Santa Claus. I'm like, God, it is, like, Walt Simonson, Marty Pascal, Jerry Conway, all of these guys. You know, Denny O'Neill and, and, uh, and Neil Adams and stuff. They were my storytellers when I was, like, five years old and seven years old and stuff. So that they even return my calls or are happy to have a talk with me. It, it absolutely, I mean, I'm in seventh heaven. So those are my favorite talks. So there you go. Now, when it comes to, like, asking questions that are sort of, like, the obvious questions, I feel like, do you ever feel like, I mean, I want to ask that because I know I know the answer to this, but our listeners might not. So sure. I feel like sometimes you, you kind of have to, you know. Well, yeah, and that's kind of what I was going for. And it really pissed me off with Wolfman, if I may, not to pick on him. <laughs> but he made a DVD, and I can't remember what it was called, but it, it's a pretty good DVD that has interviews with Marv. And Jeff Johns, I think Wade is on there too, but it's several cool creators, and it's about seven or eight years old. And um, the guy's like, so how did Crisis on Earth happen? Oh, you know, it's actually a very interesting story. I'm like, oh, fuck you. I'm like, I'm like oh, sure, mister, I got a TV camera. Well, I'm happy to like share now, but because, you know, Jimmy Idiot's talking to you on the phone, I get the bums rush. I'm like, whatever, go, go create a new Titan and leave me alone. <laughs> Shit. So, so on that ugly note, we will wrap up. Now, thanks a lot for listening. Thanks Check out Double Page Spread. Check out uh, Ink Pulp Audio. And uh, if you listen to Word Balloon, I, I apologize. Thank you very much. <laughs> thanks. There you go. There's uh, three more uh, conversations for you on this week's Word Balloon. I hope you enjoyed it. It was brought to you today by InStock Trades at InStockTrades.com. Amazing deals are happening right now in in-stock trades. Things like select Boom Studio titles are up to 70% off the standard retail price. Uh, you can also get uh, top shelf titles. Select titles are 70% off. Uh, Marvel and Dark Horse titles are all a huge 45% off. So uh, just a few of the things. And then, of course, I see a DC uh, deal going on. DC and Image titles. All DC and Image titles, 45% off right now at InStockTrades.com. But uh, you can also check out things like Loki, uh, Agents of Asgard, Volume 3 is uh, Last Days with uh, art from uh, Lee Garbett and uh, Al Ewing writing, uh, an excellent book. Uh, 45% off, $9.89. You can get Saga's Trade Paperback, Volume 5, Fiona Staples and Brian K. Vaughn. Uh, it is 45% off, $8.24. Howard the Duck, Chip Zdarsky. Chip's coming up pretty soon, uh, right here on Word Balloon. And uh, Joe Quinones, uh, by the way, also on uh, Howard the Duck. But uh, Volume 0. Technically, what the duck is available at uh, 50% off, just $8.49. All of these deals are waiting for you at InStockTrades.com. Excellent deals, excellent savings. You'll find more if you search through their database and uh, find the books you're looking for at the price you can't beat. Check it out for yourself, InStockTrades.com. 
I want to remind you, too, that uh, Brad was on. And uh, if you uh, do any shopping for Brad Meltzer Books via Amazon, uh, don't forget you can go through the Amazon uh, portal here at WordBalloon.com. And uh, if you uh, buy anything uh, from Amazon... Uh, not just books, not just CDs or movies or whatever. you Do people still buy CDs? If you buy digital music or whatever, any of your Amazon purchases, if you go through the portal through uh, wordballoon.com, it's the same Amazon store, but I get a little kickback from... Uh, Sending you, uh, sending you to Amazon. So uh, it's uh, it's great. It's a great way to help support Word Balloon and purchase things. It's no extra money to you, none whatsoever. And all you're doing is, um, we're, you know, Amazon is actually taking a little money from uh, from their profit and uh, get passing it on to Word Balloon for the referral. So uh, if you if you do choose to do that, thank you very much, and I, I certainly appreciate it. And thank you to all of you who have already done this in the past. Uh, questions or comments about the show, reach me via email, john at wordballoon.com. You can follow me at Twitter under at John Word Balloon or uh, at Facebook under my name, John Suntress. I also have a Tumblr account. Uh, Word Balloon is also available now on SoundCloud. All the new episodes pop up immediately, and I'm slowly putting the library up as well. I think I've got about 16 or 17 episodes since I've started doing this, and uh, hundreds more are coming, I promise you. So uh, that's another option in terms of how to get Word Balloon. Uh, if you listen through iTunes and if you haven't left a review, please do me a favor and uh, leave a review and a rating at, uh, at iTunes for Word Balloon because uh, my old feed was uh, suddenly canceled and I lost o- over 100 reviews and ratings. And it's uh, kind of lousy that uh, iTunes did that. Uh, the good news is my uh, backup feed is still up and running, and uh, I am just asking people that if you've left a review in the past, good or bad, happy uh, to uh, get that feedback back there. So uh, if you wouldn't mind uh, leaving a rating and review at uh, iTunes, that would really help out the cause here at Word Balloon. All right, until next time, and uh, next time is just coming in a few days, uh, keep listening because more Cincy Comic Con coverage and uh, more creator uh, interviews as well. In the word balloon tradition, is they're just days away. So uh, thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you in a couple days. Until next time, word balloon is a copyright feature of Shaky Productions, copyright 2015.